epic video. <laughs> hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition to Faith Unaltered, where the big boys come to play, and ladies. Uh, so <laughs> I'm your host, David Russell, and I'm here with all the co-hosts, except for one that's working his way in. Um, I'm here with Josh Davison, Dale Glover, and the man, Tyler Fowler himself. How are you doing, guys? Good, brother. Right? Awesome. Yep, doing good. Good, good. So, Dale, what are we talking about today, man? Yeah, so today it's going to be a good episode. It's, we're kind of following up from last week where we had a panel of Orthodox guys saying, why the heck are you guys Orthodox and that sort of thing. So this week's the follow-up. We're, we're a bunch of Protestants, and we're going to be saying, why are we Protestants? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, you know, I, I, I this this show was inspired by uh, one of our guests here, Priscilla. I actually saw a video that she did on TikTok. It was like the first video I saw of her, and she was like, hey, look, Protestants are waking up to uh, all those. You know, we're waking up, basically. We're, we're not just going to let you know, things roll over on us anymore. We're, you know, we're understanding why we are Protestants basically. So I thought that was really encouraging. So I wanted to do a panel discussion of why we are Protestants and that inspired Tyler to do why we are Orthodox. So I thought that was pretty cool. Why we are Roman Catholic. Um, I, mean, I thought yeah. I was, yeah. I was the inspiration, but I guess not. What's that? Okay. No, your, your red cream <laughs> soda is never an inspiration for anything. So, <laughs> <get> no. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a panel of guests with us today and I'm going to start with the people that are not on the or have not been on faith unaltered before so priscilla i'm gonna let you tell everybody a little bit about yourself who you are and what you do okay so um my name is priscilla i am 27 i have two daughters i grew up catholic um for 19 years i had all my sacraments and um pretty devout catholic um and then I went to a Pentecostal church for a little bit because the person I had married at the time, their family or his grandpa was a uh, pastor. But at the time I didn't know it was Pentecostal and I thought it was like very strange, the whole like jumping around and like forcing to fall backwards and with like a false prophet and things like that. Um, so, and then from that, we ended up getting divorced. So obviously I, I you know, had my own faith journey. And then um, I didn't know denominations really existed like that. I just thought it was just, if you like a church, that's pretty much it. And um, then I went to a non-denominational church, which is the one I'm currently attending right now. I was water baptized. I was attending Bible studies. I was going to church regularly. And then um, somehow I still managed to almost fall for Mormonism. And I think the reason for that is because I had not read the Bible. So up until then, and that's how I can attest to um, personally that water baptism does not save you. Because even in that moment where the pastor said, if you want to be baptized, raise your hand. And I was so scared. I was so nervous. I, it was almost like, not embarrassment, but you know, you don't want to go up and everyone's watching you and your hair is wet as a girl. And, um, I ended up doing it. And then, um, and, and it was so like, I don't know how to explain it. Like I even wanting to do it, I still woke up dead. Like that's strange because I, I felt like I was doing something, but it still had not done anything to me. 
because I almost fell for Mormonism. And like I said, I think a lot of that has to do with not reading the Bible. I read the Book of Mormon before I read the Bible. Um, yeah, before I ever read the Bible. And then um, very fortunately, one Bible study night, uh, I told them this was going to be my last Bible study because I found a church that was a little bit more suiting, the LDS church. And then he sat me down with his wife. They were my Bible study teachers. And he just, for the first time I heard scripture and I read it, like I always saw it in the screen and I, it, it was like, it fed me every Sunday, but I, it just wasn't enough. Like I just never read it. And so after he showed me, it was Galatians, Galatians saved my life. And from that moment, I read the Bible. And despite people saying, you know, you can't interpret scripture on your own, you need the church to do it. I was able to, and I came to the conclusion that, you know, um, the church that I was with, the non-denominational church, um, it was very biblical. And me and all our members are super close. Um, so that's where I'm at now. I, I ended up reverting back to my non-denominational church. Um, it's not anything like a mega church or anything. Um, we do have that personal relationship with God. We meet in an elementary school, which some would say they would laugh at and mock, but to me, that's like borderline blasphemy. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, right now I am um, Protestant. I consider myself Reformed Protestant, even though a lot of my members in my church might not consider themselves Reformed. They might consider themselves still Evangelical. But I think a lot of that has to do with um, them not doing outside research. Um, and as you can tell, I have a bunch of books. So I get the relationship with God at church. And then um, the Reformed part, I do that on my own self-study at home. And so I would consider myself currently right now reformed non-denominational, if that makes sense. No, that makes, that makes complete sense. And wow, what a journey, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a wild journey. And I, I commend you for, you know, actually going to the scriptures and reading them. And also like, so you are a social media person. You do have a TikTok account. So tell people where they can find you at real quick. Okay, so I do have a link tree. Um, it's not just TikTok, but I do TikTok. Um, I also run a Discord server where there's a bunch of um, Reformed Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox. That's mainly what it is right now, the three main branches, um, the triune. Um, I like to call it the triune um, branches of Christianity. I do have it open to other groups. I do have other um, sections like Muslims, atheists, um, discerning or other faith, LDS. We have one LDS member in there. He's not really active, but, um, and, uh, and then I do, so that's a uh, discord server. I, um, I, right now it's mainly just like things in the works. So like, I do plan to do a website one day. I do plan to go back to college, Christian Colorado university, get an um, apologetics degree and work on a few minor major projects, um, things like that. And so it's just Linktree slash Priscilla X Destiny, which is my username, if you can see below. Um, I feel like I'm missing something. I'll probably look back later and be like, oh, why didn't I? That was my chance to like mention. Priscilla, now you'll be, we'll, we'll, let, we'll let you do, hold on, we'll let you do that at the end too. But yeah, go ahead, okay. Tyler. 
I just got to, uh, you said that you were reformed. So would you say that you're more in line with like Calvin, Lutheranism, uh, Arminianism? What, um, whenever you say reformed, what do you mean? Exactly. I would say Calvinism. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know, honestly, too much into depth of like everything Calvin taught, but as far as like the five points of Tulip, I accept all of them full five point Calvinist. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's very biblical and it's just Christianity 101. And then, yeah. Just out of curiosity, <laughs> where are you at with eschatology? Would you be more all mill, pre mill, or uh, post mill? If you, I, I forget which ones, which one, like how, where they are at, yeah. but if you were to explain them, um, I'm not too big into eschatology right now because it's not my main focus, but um, I am pre-trib. Okay, so pre-mill. Okay. Gotcha. Right. Right just, on, right on. Secondary cool. issue, just curious. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's let's move on. Let's move on. Mitch Starkey, man. How are you doing, brother? Yeah, g'day. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Okay, just tell us a little bit about yourself too, man, sure. and, and uh, what, you know, why you're Protestant and, and so forth. Sure. Okay, so I'd be, um, I'd be Protestant, uh, answering that question first, be Protestant uh, based off tradition, uh, not to do with converting from another, uh, say converting like Priscilla from Catholicism or, or Eastern Orthodoxy or Muslim or anything like that. So I was, grew up in a Pentecostal charismatic church, very familiar with everything that Priscilla just said. Um, they they place a lot of importance and a lot of weight on, um, or actually they don't place a lot of weight, sorry, is what I meant to say, on doctrine and exegesis. It's pretty much um, low to non-existent. Uh, they're very. They put a lot of weight on feelings, um, and pretty much they define faith as, you know, believing without evidence, which is not the biblical definition of faith. Um, so um, because of that, I sort of that was kind of the the, the big portion of my early life, and uh, in the sort of mid-teens, I, you know, backslid. I it had no theological foundation. I put it down to, um, and. Then I went away for and kind of lived my own life for, um, oh, geez, almost 15 years maybe, um, just uh, being inconsistent, uh, but still holding a, 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 um, a belief that God exists and a belief that Christianity is true, but not actually trusting in it as faith is defined. Uh, and then I end up uh, by way of, I guess, God's providence, um, moving from Cairns, North Queensland uh, to uh, Cronulla. Uh, and in Sydney, and uh, came across. <laughs> I see the other Paul. They go, <laughs> shy boy. Um, came across a, a local Pentecostal church um, uh, called the Potter's House Church, and that that's um, that's headquartered in uh, Prescott, Arizona. And uh, that at first was that, that. There was a time when I walked in there that first time that God really got a hold of my heart in that church after an altar call. And that's a that's a um, that's a funny Pentecostal church. They place a lot of um, a lot of focus on evangelism, discipleship, and planting churches. Um, they don't subscribe to the typical stuff that I was used to, so they seemed a little bit more biblical. Uh, but that, and, but without going into all the issues, I noticed even very early on in my discipleship within that church that there was a uh, there was next to no fellowship with Christians outside of this particular fellowship. Uh, they were very unified inside um but uh i found that they were exalting themselves um above and over other christians uh, based on their activity and their type of preaching 
Um, and so it was divided from the outside. So they cut themselves off. So no other um, outside voices were primarily allowed. You were discouraged from checking that out or, you know, you had to listen or you're encouraged. It's not like you had to. You were encouraged to listen to only the voices, the preachers within the fellowship itself. Um, and so as I studied systematic theology um, inside that church and really started getting into subjects like eschatology and soteriology and really just scouring YouTube, I just had a mind to um, to check things out. I noticed that that wasn't a thing outside this fellowship. It was only unique inside. And so I noticed that, you know, Paedobaptists would fellowship with Credo-Baptists and, you know, those who, you know, uh, just different, the open-handed issues didn't actually affect their relationship with each other. But, um, and so that really struck me. Um, and then, you know, as I started to um, sort of develop in that and I became, you know, quickly became preterist after sort of um, hearing the evidence for that and post-meal. Um, and then I guess that, got, I, yeah. So I went on a bit of a early ride with that. I think as the, you know, it's got such explanatory power. So I just went on that ride for a bit. And then I, when I tried to discussing it with the, the elders and pastors, um, then there was like this immediate uh, wall that came up and, you know, I had to align with their doctrine and, and just had to work things out. But, and, and, um, and they were sort of, there was, it's open-handed stuff, but they were, they were also pre-trib. They were uh, Armenian uh, in their own way. So, it just had to align with what they think and the requirement to be in ministry. And that's even like if you're going to be an usher or play guitar or do any type of serving at all, uh, you had to align with that type of way, uh, that type of those, um, those open-handed, what they, um, because they, the way they saw it is that um, the pastor is endorsing you. And it's very hierarchical. Um, it's like the pastor had to be involved in every, every area of your spiritual life and, even non-spiritual life as well. Like, you know, what do you do for a job and what jobs to take and things like that. But um, yeah, because I didn't agree to that, we, my wife and I, it was development over five years, but my wife and I end up coming to the conclusion that it's time to leave. And and um, God again supplied uh, another, which is a church I'm going to now, another pastor. And uh, that came, and there's another story there. But uh, yeah, he sort of ran me through the Bible, similar, very similar to what Priscilla just said, actually, just ran me through scripture, just taught me a really basic form of exegesis uh, with certain passages. And suddenly it was just like God just opened my eyes and I just saw what I was experiencing wasn't uh, the Christian culture, historically speaking. So yeah, I'm happy there and living life for God and serving in a number of ways. And it's fantastic. Right on, man. Right on. So we have the black Dr. Jeremiah Short. You've been on the show. Thanks for waiting. Skip. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Thanks for the super chat, Mitch. <laughs> no, thank you for the super chat, Mitch. We really yeah. appreciate um, that, brother. Absolutely. And yeah, so so Jeremiah, again, just uh tell the audience a little bit about yourself, even though if they if they don't know you by now, they haven't been listening to the show, right? So exactly. Right. How how many how many times am I going to have to be on here before I become the rank of co-host? I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but Trust those, me, get on know. here at least once a month, and then we'll talk, bud. <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> uh, but for those who know me and those who don't, I am Jeremiah Short, also known as the Black Doctor. Uh, I do content on TikTok under the username Black Doctor Twenty one uh, i also do stuff here on youtube on my own channel i've been revamping it a bit um but i also uh, podcast on uh the win of the way podcast where uh my boy andrew does apologetics is also a co-host there 
Um, I also have an Instagram where I do all do stuff on there. Also, uh, my Patreon, uh, where you can get access to a lot of the exclusive content that I do, such as, you know, audiobooks of the early church fathers, exclusive live streams on very important topics. I just had my first um, chill slash Q&A stream, which is exclusive for patrons. Um, and then I also do teachings on church history. Um, on Tuesday, I'm going to be doing one specifically on Gnosticism and the doctrine of scripture. Um, and I just added a new um, a new tier uh, to my Patreon where you guys, if you um, if you become a patron, the um, the ten dollar patron, you can actually get exclusive uh, AI art, which is done specifically for you by a friend of mine. Right on, right on. And we've got the other Paul, brother. It's been a while since the last uh, Solar Scripture talk, I think. Indeed it has. I'm uh, I'm really glad to be back. Uh, really quickly, so Mitch, you said you, you moved to Cronulla. I actually, I'm in the West now and I've been in for most of my life, but for a three-year stretch, I actually lived in Gaimir. <laughs> That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. It is, yeah. And actually, funnily enough, it's, uh, maybe you know, it, I actually live right near the Greek Orthodox Church that was there. So it was a, uh, that was fun, especially seeing him during the uh, the Easter period when they get in the massive procession, walking around the block with the candles. That, yeah. that was sick. You could smell the incense from my house. It was insane. Um, but yeah, brief reintro. Um, the other Paul, I've got YouTube. I've got a website slash blog, theotherpaul64.com. I do basically anything regarding uh, Holy Scripture, history, particularly ancient history and um, and theology that I see a need for. And particularly as of late, I've taken serious my distinctive identity as an Anglican. And so that's going to, that is far more, that's becoming more and more explicit on the channel that, uh, that Anglican rooted um, perspective. Um, I too have a support page, not, uh, not Patreon, because I got banned there for hate speech. Don't ask me why. Um, they didn't tell me either. Um, but I got a subscribe star instead. Uh, I'm not really emphasizing it at the moment because it's a little bit of a downturn in content at the moment until I finish. Uh, this second documentary project for my uh, for my Eastern Orthodox friend Craig Truglia. Um, so that's going to be done for that's going to be done for him, God willing, in like a couple of days from now. And once that's done, then my content's going to ramp up again, and it'll be uh, it'll be all sweet, and I'll start plugging my uh, supporter thing again, so I can turn this into an income. Um, yeah, that's that's me in some. Right. Oh well, like like uh, thank thank you very much, guys, for being here. First off. Um, uh, I'm blessed, and you know I like to put together a you know a conglomerate of Protestants that you know are from a little bit different backgrounds. But Dale has written up this wonderful uh, four question panel discussion, so we can get on that. So I'm going to hand it over to him so he can get that going. Dale. Uh, yeah, so I kind of made an agenda for topics and that sort of thing. And one of the things uh, last week that I asked the Orthodox to do, I wanted them to present their positive reasons. Why are they Orthodox? So on that front, I think it's fair to ask us as Protestants, you know, what are positive reasons for thinking that Protestantism is true? And, and what is Protestantism? So, yeah, that's where I think we're going to start. Um, I guess, Priscilla, we can start with you. Um, so for me, I think in order to view the positive reasons of Protestantism, you would have to look at the negative reasons of Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. Um, that's kind of how I do that. And then I just compare all three of them and see, you know, just based on a conclusion, the, the one that I believe is lines up the most with scripture. 
and um, church history and things like that. Cool. All right. Uh, Mitchell? Yeah, because the first pope was. Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> because the first pope was. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, again, like, I, I think... I think just to, to give you a serious answer, I think um, the uh, why Protestantism is true, and I'm, I'm wanting to be extremely honest. I if if Catholicism were true, I would convert to Catholicism. Um, what I find as as I've looked through history a little bit uh, that. Um, it's not. Uh, it, these are later developments. The Catholic Church has evolved over time with its traditions. Um, but again, it comes down to the Reformation, you know, just wanting to get back to uh, what, what Scripture holds to be true. And I think that's, that's a conviction that I hold to. So that's why I would say I'm a Protestant. And so it's becoming, it's gone from tradition uh, to conviction very quickly. All right. Awesome. Uh, the Black Doctor. Uh, for me, the reason why I am a Protestant is, um, number one, because I believe that the scriptures say so, and also because I believe tradition um, <clears throat> tradition adds to it. Um, because when you look through, when you look through scripture, you see the doctrines found within Protestantism. And the Protestant movement was, when you look at it historically, is not an argument of, well, the church has basically lost its way, we need to reinvent the wheel. Absolutely not. Uh, the Protestant view is that, um, well, pretty much just simply reading what, you know, Article um, Article 14 of the 39 article says, as the Church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch have erred, so also the Church of Rome hath erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith. So because they have erred, the, the Reformation was saying that we need to go back to the, to, the, you know, to the apostolic faith. These errors need to be corrected. And since the institutional church was not willing to correct those things, they kicked the rest of the Protestants out. And so we simply carried on as the church. We might have our differences, but the church continues to carry on. All right, awesome. And the other Paul? Well, this is a question that I'm actually not a great fan of because some of a lot of my recent content in particular has been challenging even the use of the term Protestant um, because of how amorphous it is and how it is simply not an equivalent concept to Eastern Orthodoxy, for example. With uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, you have a specific concrete definable communion and a specific theological tradition within there. Um, but with Protestantism, this is an umbrella of numerous consciously independent communions and different streams of tradition. And so to compare one to the other, um, especially in light of saying, oh, Protestantism is so divided, um, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of, it's basically, it's not even comparing apples and oranges. It's comparing apples and circuit boards, you know, it's, it's just not, not even the same category at all. And so that's why I tend not to, give a defense of why I am Protestant, but more particularly, um, at most, I will say something like why I hold to Reformation distinctives, which are common among, well, at minimum, the um, ref, uh, the Reformation era traditions like the Lutherans and the Anglicans, um, second even second generation uh, traditions as well, 
but I'll always put that qualifier. And at best, I'll say why I hold to Reformation distinctions, um, uh, like uh, the doctrine the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And there can even be different nuances among the traditions. Likewise, the doctrine of uh, fundamental uh, fundamental foundation in scripture alone. Um, but ultimately, I'll argue for why I'm an Anglican in particular, because that is a distinct tradition. Um, and so I'll say why I am an Anglican, um, and, and many of the reasons will overlap with other Protestant traditions. Um, but ultimately, it, this fuels me being an Anglican. So I'll hold it for similar negative reasons other people brought up, such as the uh, the errors of Rome and the East. And it's not just like another, uh, like a, a Protestant quote unquote tradition where they teach something wrong and, oh no, that's bad. Then they can correct themselves. But um, it's particularly bad because the certain kinds of errors could falsify the Rome and the East, given what they claim about their own uh, impeccability, for example, um, or whatever term you want to use, indefectibility and the like. Uh, with regard to their teaching authority. Likewise, with what they claim about the traditions of the early church, which I believe can be uh, falsified on a number of fronts. So that, that's kind of the usual stuff, but really the key positive reasons um, will fundamentally be the example of Christ and the apostles. Where do they direct us to fundamentally root and rest all of our teaching? How do they teach us to do Christian life? And even what particular uh, teachings do they, um, do they require us that we believe? And I submit that the uh, that the Anglican communion is uh, that the Anglican communion best reflects this uh, out of everybody else. But otherwise, other um, traditions such as the Lutherans and um, le lesser extent, like the Presbyterians and the Baptists and such, that they also do have fundamental faithful reflections of such. All right. Awesome. Now, uh, uh, I'm not sure, Josh, you attend a Protestant church, but I know you're leaning Orthodoxy. Do you want to answer that or is it a appropriate to ask you to answer this sir uh well no i i, I do attend a non-denominational church and technically speaking i'm not a catechumen or anything in the in the eastern or the the catholic church uh and so i guess i can speak as a protestant i probably would be a lot a lot of the same positives that i think would be listed uh, are, are things that i also would say okay this is why i haven't gone to become uh, a member of this or that uh, tradition so far. I actually do have a lot of interest in the Eastern Church and agree with a lot of the things that are taught there. But as of now, I'm kind of a theological mutt. I don't really have a tradition that I adhere to explicitly. Um, and yet I see the need for, you know, uh, uh, a, a solidified unity uh, and tradition and church authority can facilitate that. I don't disagree with that. I think that this is something that perhaps a lot of Protestants could do a lot better about um, because this there there's there's a lot of disunity. But positively, I think that that Protestantism for me, having grown up in this tradition, is something that allows me, um, let's say, the freedom of my own idiosyncrasy to think about the scripture and reason through things. Um, I, per, perhaps there are less. Um, uh, let's say like guardrails or boundaries around the edges. And it sometimes is a little bit awkward because there isn't something that, that dictates necessarily the way that a Pope or a church tradition would in the same sense. Uh, but it almost gives you in that sense, the individual idiosyncratic freedom to discover and learn and fall in love with Christianity in a way that I think perhaps wouldn't have been available to me if I had just grown up in a firm tradition that had this, 
you know, overarching authority that was enforced in that way. Uh, and I've I've learned so much by not having that. And so I think in some sense, the the looseness or the 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 freedom within it to dis discover and explore how to uh, uh, unify around things and how to, uh, function as a, as a worshiping congregation and, and to be the body of Christ and what it means to be evangelistic and, and all of the things that go into that. I think that there are a lot of positive aspects in that freedom. And so that's, that's something that I would say is one of the reasons why I haven't yet jumped ship and said, I'm not a Protestant anymore. I technically am. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I do have a lot of sympathies toward other things. So I'm probably, um, uh, you know, uh, not 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 going to be the the strongest voice in the room, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm like uh, you know at at enmity with with Protestantism at all, like at all. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Uh, yeah, David David Russell. What's what's your take? Yeah, bro. You know, I, such good answers coming from from all of you guys, and um, I want to actually kind of uh, shift to the more personal level as well. And I think the freedom of worship for me is very appealing on Protestantism because I think it lines up I, I think one of the one of the biggest parts of scripture that hits me was the woman at the well you know and that that chapter in john where you know you're going to worship you're not going to go to a temple you're not going to go to a mountain but you're going to worship in spirit and truth and i think protestantism reflects that really well and another big area for me is um church history i think the reformation and what went on in the restaurant the history of the reformation the things these guys talked about i think were all relevant uh, to the corruption that we can see that tr tradition had gotten itself into, you know, the church traditions and, and stuff. Um, I don't think the ecumenical councils were all good. You know, I don't, I, I think the minute you started anathematizing people, I thought, thought, you know, I think that's wrong. I think the, the fact that they end up having inquisitions that killed people and, and I'd even blast the, some of the reformers for killing over, uh, a hundred thousand Anabaptists within, um, you know, uh, a year, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty bad or it might've been two years. Jer Jeremiah can correct me on that, but I also like the authority of scripture. You know, I'm, I'm really big on the authority of scripture due to my historical background and the way that the texts were preserved to me is a, a very strong testimony and to, uh, um, it, it's it, to, to the, idea that god wants us to have those things he wants us to be able to understand those you know he wants us all to have that and to interpret that and to understand it you know so um i hold to the authority of scripture you know as as the primary source of my uh, spiritual guidance and it's never failed me so i think all those are appealing in protestantism <clears throat> versus uh you know accepting something because the church just because the church says so so all right, cool. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess I'll give my take quickly. So like on the question, what is Protestantism? I think I agree. Uh, a couple of you guys have said, look, there's a lot of variety uh, within Protestantism, right? So uh, trying to define what is Protestant Protestantism proper type type deal is a little difficult. Um, but I guess I would affirm the five solas as a, as a good start. I think that those are probably essentials for Protestantism. Um, now, in terms of my own positive reasons, why? Hey, Dale. Why, uh, can, yeah. can you do me a favor and just for for my own humor, because I, I'm pretty sure there's probably going to be some people that are watching this that are newer. What are the five solas? Can you list them out? All right. I didn't know there's a pop quiz, but uh, so there's sola scriptura, which just just means scripture alone. Uh, solus Christus, uh, Christ alone. 
uh, sola uh, fide, which means faith alone. Uh, and then there's sola gratia, which means grace alone. Uh, and then finally is uh, soli uh, deo gloria, glory to God alone. So those are the five solas that Protestants affirm. Cool. All right. Um, all right, cool. So what are my reasons for thinking that Protestantism is true? And I can think of about four. For myself, there are three that would apply. So in the first place, um, I think there's this mere Protestantism, which is true by default, because look, Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants, we all affirm this, uh, the same books in the Bible, the 39 in the Old Testament, and then the 27 in the New Testament as inspired. This is a default that we all agree on. And then we can use that as a standard to judge additional doctrines or additional books, you know, whatever you want to judge. So I think uh, Protestantism, at least the mere variety, is true by default. Uh, we win. Uh, you know, you have to prove the additional stuff. Um, the second reason I believe certain things is uh, via properly based belief. I think the Holy Spirit attests to the truth uh, of at least some of the solas and, and stuff like that. Um, and then finally, uh, some of you guys mentioned, look, we can reason from the scriptures. We have derivative knowledge that other doctrines or other sola doctrines are true and that sort of thing. So those are my three reasons for believing in Protestantism. Um, there is a fourth that I mentioned to Tyler before, but maybe there's, if you have like an objective evidence, I don't know, some kind of a miracle that somehow attests to Protestantism proper or something like that. I don't know of any cases like that, but uh, hypothetically that could be another way to privilege Protestantism. So yeah, that's my, uh, that's my take. Um, yeah. Well, Tyler, you're the, you're the Orthodox uh, kind of thing. So you've been listening to our answers. Do you want to probe anyone and, or say anything? Well, just out of curiosity. So I was trying to write down uh, there. You guys, it, it sucks in one sense to be the only one in the corner. I think I know how Athanasius felt whenever he came up with the slogan Athanasius against the world writer, whenever that was came up or, or was uh, said about him. <laughs> but uh, but no, um, I do want to ask David uh, because he had made a statement about anathema uh, being anathematized. Um, so let me just clarify something real quick, David. You said that anathema to be anathematized is not good. Um, would you say the same thing about excommunication? Sorry, I had it on mute. Yeah, you're good, I would say I would say no in the fact that uh, um, there, you know, for excommunication, you know, it's I think it serves well for and it could be the same thing. I, I guess you can you can say it's for the same same reasons that, you know, anathemas are like excommunication. I guess is there is protection uh, for people that are in the church, obviously. I just don't agree with the reasons that they anathematize people. So that's what I was trying it's just to clarify. So yeah. I, I don't I don't know what, what you want me to answer. I do believe that you, you know you gotta protect the church. You gotta protect your local body. So yeah, you can excommunicate somebody from your your local body. And I'm not saying that if that's how you're looking at it anathematism you know, an anathema as well. Yeah, I, that's not what I meant by my original comment. So what I meant by my original comment was basically um, I don't agree for the reasons they anathematize people uh, in, okay. in some of the councils. That's what I meant. 
Okay, so you're not against so, yeah. anathematizing per se. Not per se. No, not like saying. I mean, okay. we we do. I mean, we all come to a judgment on what, whether something's right or wrong. Just because mm-hmm. someone on a piece of paper uh, is, you know, I don't I don't hold that against them. Okay. It's not like no, that. Fair enough. Fair enough. So would excommunication? So I'll ask this to the panel. Then would excommunication be something that everyone is in agreement with? Then here. Yep. Yep. And I'll jump on it at the same time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. First Corinthians five. Okay. Um, there's a time to to uh, excommunicate someone, sure. and it is for the protection of the church. Galatians right. one eight is also quite clear. If anyone preaches a gospel different from the one you received, let him be anathema. Okay. Do you guys think yeah. that they're separate? Because I feel like excommunication has to do with like the church. Like you're no longer a member. You can't come here. And then anathematize means like the church has no like it, you're it's beyond the church's control like that's between you and God like you've you've been anathematized beyond us. I think the the language with anathema is very much appropriate and what the church uh, should use as it has historically done um, because we can we can recognize how with a proper declaration of anathema, it's not its not like there is this absolute invested power where just because this church hierarchy says so, now you're anathema. Um, but we can we can conceive of it nonetheless as, a, as an official uh, recognition of something that has already happened in heaven, like you can see with the apostles, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Um, so if you will, a sort of prophetic recognition of what the Lord has already declared by virtue of someone uh, preaching and obstinately holding to heresy and blasphemy. And so we can say as the church that let this person be anathema, uh, not because we have the strictly inherent power to do so, but by uh, but by virtue of what uh, the word of God and God himself has already done. Uh, and so, yeah, any, um, any legitimate faithful church can recognize that and declare that that's that's how i'd say that god i'm so sorry i, I was not laughing at you uh paul so andrew said he was eating asmr style yeah, what's is anybody else getting a little feedback <laughs> yeah it was a little yeah. a little feedback on yours but i think i i didn't know if it is it Priscilla? I think it's yeah. I think, I think it's I think it's Mike. Yep. But yep. Yeah. Just out. Yep. <laughs> I think it was probably like. I was wondering who was oh, that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So but I, I think she'll I think she'll fix that. Um. And if I if I were to give my my comments on that, I would I would yeah. completely agree, um, with what um what the other Paul said, and to um, I guess not only not only affirm that, but also in relation to like some of the some of the questions, the brightly. Uh, rightly asked questions in, in some of the comments. If somebody is excommunicated from one Protestant church, um, what's stopping them from going to another Protestant church and having it be all good? Um, well, that, that assumes that churches don't communicate with one another. Um, we have a standard of, you know, being, you know, in good standing with a particular denomination and with a particular church. Um, if they are doing as a church is supposed to do, if one goes to another congregation, they are supposed to contact the church that they previously were at and get information about this person. And if they are shown to not be in good uh, in good standing, then discipline should be done. So, I mean, there is there is church discipline within Protestant denominations. They don't people just don't take in heretics or, yeah. or at least they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. It's 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 same with other denominations, too, or, or even the even the apostolic churches, if we want to call them that church discipline should be done. Mm-hmm. So and let me if ask- I may as well really quick, quickly on that. This yeah. um, this kind of argument 
um, this kind of argument uh, conflates a simple phenomenological, like real de facto reality versus a de jure reality, um, wherein we can point to, like we can see a de, de facto reality, okay? Someone is excommunicated. Um, well, first of all, I deny the very existence of Protestant land. Protestantism isn't a church. It doesn't exist. So Agreed. That's, that's why I'm very heavy yeah. on the Anglican language. Agreed. Um, so that's why I completely deny that entirely. It's, it's, it's as meaningful as saying what I'm about to argue back, um, where if we group together, we do the same thing as the concept of Protestantism. We can group together all the so-called apostolic churches, the Eastern Communions, the Orientals, the Coptics, the Roman Catholics, various other sects uh, in between and all there. We can group these all together and call them the ecclesialists, as I've argued. And so then you can you can you can put forward the exact same thing, especially uh, if uh, especially if certain uh, jurisdictions have denied the apostolic succession of uh, one another. That that's very interesting. Arguably, we could have put the Anglicans in that category a, a while ago, but be that as it may, um, right. the exact same thing can uh, can happen. Someone someone could be excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, there's nothing stopping an Eastern Orthodox Church from accepting them. So it's really, it really is a, uh, it really is a reality. So that's all that says is that this is a de facto reality. People can do that to and from any other denomination, uh, including the so-called apostolic churches. It's actually a completely meaningless claim. Um, what is the de jure reality is a completely different story. And so I'd say from an Anglican perspective as well, someone who has been, uh, someone who has been rightly excommunicated or rightly anathematized or whatever. Um, from an Anglican church, they are under um, they are under God's curse because of their obstinate holding to that heresy. And mm -hmm. so, even if they go on to attend another church, that doesn't change anything. That church shouldn't be harboring that unrepentant person unless they have repented them, uh, repented, and God will judge them for that. So that's kind of the that's that's the issue here: conflation of de jure versus de facto reality. So, and besides, how how many how many how much has it been? since these these german priests and german bishops who allow same-sex unions how how long has it been since they've particular not been excommunicated rome. hey guys yeah i know i know it. that but still i mean like just just considering yeah, that, yeah no exactly exactly if, if we're going to poke fingers at the lack of church discipline in one in in one area of christendom the same finger can be pointed right back at them yeah okay so let me let me just get so I I think I know where you guys would stand on this Jeremiah and the uh, the other Paul here but <clears throat> I do want to ask so you guys would say that being members and Jeremiah I know you're going this way but Paul you are a member of an Anglican church would you say that the Anglican church is a visible church or or would you be more in line uh, with other Protestant uh, denominations and sayings such as the invisible church how, how where do you guys stand exactly whenever it comes to that? Uh, topic. Actually, Jeremiah, do you want to go first? Because I actually need to do something really quickly. And sure, 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 sure. Yeah, definitely. We would say both. I would say both. Oh, okay. Because the church is not only uh, invisible, referring to the elect, all that God has called to be saved, but mm -hmm. also the visible church. The, the church has a visible structure. Um, and there's there's a lot of misrepresentation when it comes to the emphasis of the invisible church in relation to Protestantism. Okay. But I mean, every denomination, I would say, um, and other people have argued, um, do have to have a full perspective in relation to the invisible church. Um, one of them, if I if if I could share my screen real quick, yeah. um, this is from 
the Calvinist International. And the entire point of this article is that whenever you look at a high church theology, even in Roman Catholic, even in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, a high church perspective always becomes an invisible church perspective. Um, so a, a man named Dominic Fu has argued this way. He says this, the point that in the end, nobody, at least nobody with a proper command of church history, believes that their church today in visible outward terms is the same as the apostolic church in terms of both belief or practice. The Eastern Orthodox theologian George Florovsky condemns what he calls a harmful primitivism in the, Vincent, uh, in the Vincentian canon to believe only what always has been believed. What does this discussion on the fact change, the fact of change, have to do with the visibility of the church? It boils down to the incompatibility of two claims. Number one, my church doesn't change. And number two, my church is substantially visible. However, if one accepts that in historical and empirical terms, there is a difference between one church's past and one church's present, then the two claims are incompatible. One can maintain that one's church doesn't change, but must sacrifice the visibility of the church and not identify the church with every visible act or writing of the church. He goes on to say, Roman Catholicism has in fact always implicitly accepted the fact that the church is not as visible as they would like it to be by the way they have attempted to account for their present day doctrines and practices. Following the tradition of Bowsett, who insisted that any admission of change was anathema, his tradition basically posited some, quote unquote, unwritten oral tradition going back to the apostles' time, whereby all the present day unchanging Roman Catholic distinctives are transmitted. The unwritten oral tradition theory, however, by virtue of being unwritten, saves the continuity of the church at the expense of its visibility. Nobody, obviously, can discover or read these unwritten oral traditions simply because they are unwritten. So here, he continues to note that if, you're, if the only thing you're going to do in order to combat the, the claims of a Protestant that your church has changed is to rely on an unwritten oral tradition, then that means you can't actually deal with the evidence proposed. The church of the high church advocate, unfortunately, simply floats in platonic space, as it were. The historical narrative, which identifies the true church amidst the masses and masses of empirical facts, is essentially circular and self-justifying. It is tethered to no actual concrete foundation or standard of evaluation. Its plausibility is not derivative of any concrete fact, but based on some vague aesthetic sense in which narrative tells a better story. So here, in conclusion, to be sure that this ideal platonic church of tale touches empirical ecclesiastical realities at certain points. However, there is no visible foundation or criteria for determining when and where so it touches. It seems to merely float in and out of visible reality at random. Otherwise, it remains essentially invisible. The only way to quote-unquote catch the church is through sheer existential human act of special narration for the, for the narrative alone can identify the true visible church. Without this narrative, no one would know where is the true visible church. This is virtually Gnosticism about the church, not only to those with the special aesthetic nose to sniff out in platonic space. So here, I'm trying to point out this. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a concept of the invisible church. Mm -hmm. Everyone does, either in relation to the arguments about unity or 
especially in relation to continuity, in relation to apostolic ministry, the, the order of the church, the worship of the church, and especially the doctrines proposed, especially when Protestants come up and say, yeah, the, the words or the doctrines that you're proposing now is not in relation to the doctrines proposed by the early church. Thank you for that, Jeremiah. I appreciate it. And so my, I, I thought that's where you, uh, you and the other Paul would go. Uh, uh, the other Paul, you would agree with Jeremiah on this, I'm assuming? Um, to a large extent, yes. I didn't hear everything okay. he said, but whatever he sure. said that I didn't hear, I absolutely agree with. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but <laughs> love you, Paul. Um, That's the way it I, should be. <laughs> I do largely agree to an extent. My only uh, my only change is pretty much would be a difference of language. I do not like the language of visible invisible church, primarily because mm. largely because it has been used and abused um, by uh, non Protestants, if you will. Uh, I'll just call them ecclesialists to be the equivalent term. Um, and it's been abused, used and abused by them in order to say, oh, well, you, you believe in two separate churches, not the one unified body of Christ. No, that's just silly. That's stupid. Um, and so it's become, it's become more of a, more of a burden than it's really worth. And so it's easier just to simply distinguish between, um, we can simply distinguish between, uh, the elect versus the visible church on the earth, which is real and the church established. And even with that, you can define, you can use the term church in reference to many things. You can first think of it as the, um, as the collective of all uh, faithful churches, legitimate churches. That is where the faith, uh, the gospel is preached, the sacraments are duly administered and church discipline. The third category often by Anglican theologians, but this church discipline is rightly administered. Um, and so the collective of those, they constitute the one true body of Christ uh, on earth. Uh, and then you can speak of churches in the sense of specific institutional communions. So you can speak of the Anglican communion with Gafcon. Um, you can speak of the, uh, the confessional Lutheran communions. You can speak of the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. You can think of the Southern Baptist Convention. You can think of the Australian Christian churches, Pentecostal denomination here in Australia. Um, you can think of those as churches in the communion sense. Uh, and then you can think of church in the sense of the local denomination, which I believe is the, sorry, the local congregational parish which I believe is actually the primary use of that term in the New Testament, including um, even in the key texts of where it speaks of the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. I think the fact, I think it's demonstrable that even that refers to the local church. And that has, that totally changes um, the preconceived meaning given by, uh, by certain ecclesiastes who try to argue that this means the infallibility of the church universal, because I'd argue that it's not even talking about that to begin with, although it can be applied in a certain uh, extended uh, sense. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, I'd, uh, I'd agree with that. There is the visible church on earth. And yes, it, for everybody, including for us in our theology, it is made up of both saints and sinners, is made up of elect and non-elect. Um, and that's just an inevitable reality. And so that's the distinction I would make. And that's how I would uh, word it. Right on. I appreciate that. So given that you guys would affirm the visible church in that sense, then in the way that you guys have just explained, how would you answer this to someone that would deny the concept of the visible church and say like the Nicene Constant, uh, Constantinopolis and Creed, uh, whenever it's talking about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, uh, that's just talking about the uh, invisible church, as I know my co-host has told me before as well. This is primarily affirming that. Um, how would you guys make a distinction between uh, the person that says something like that, um, and, and how would, since we talked about excommunication earlier, how would excommunication apply to someone that actually denies the concept of a visible church? Mm -hmm. There's a oh man number of, I've never gotten that. That's a very specific way of framing it. So I'd have to think a little mm -hmm. bit on how I'll respond, but I guess 
um, in summary, I'd tell them, look, you return to the apostolic testimony itself. When they speak of Mm. the church, they are assuming um, something that is corporeal, something that is real. Um, And when you look at when it speaks about how we are, when Paul speaks about, for example, all these billion times where it talks about union with Christ, being united with Christ, being baptized unto Christ. um, What does it mean then if there is no, um, in a sense, no visible communion on earth of the church? Does that mean that one congregation or one individual is being baptized to one Christ and another to another Christ or something? Or that they're just somehow, even though they're baptized to the same Christ, then they're not in union with one another. I just tell them, well, um, you you should actually, before you even make, uh, before you even try to get me the burden of proof, you should actually try to make sense of the coherence of your own view um, with respect to what the apostles testified to, and even the very earliest witnesses um, of the of the of the Christian faith itself. Um, and so I just simply tell them, look, your view is just not coherent. Um, a concept of the visible union, um, a visible, uh, a collective visible church on earth, however one conceives of that, is inevitable and absolutely necessary. That's that's how I'd respond to them. I okay. agree. I'm, uh, I mean, and, 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 and sorry, really quickly, and even just looking at the, if you just look at the historical context in the Nicene Creed, um, it's just completely unavoidable. They believed in a visible union of the church. That's just completely anachronistic language. I it destroys authorial intent. That's what it does. Yeah, it utterly eviscerates it. Like I wouldn't, I would like, it's, it's not in my interest to, even if I would, even if I'm not in complete 100%, um, just purely hypothetically, cause I haven't fully studied them. So I can't make a judgment which way they are. But even if I myself was not fully 100% on board with say what the Nicene church conceived of as the visible church, um, I, I do not consider it on a, on the level of conscience in my interest to lie about what they say. Mm. Um, and so it's it's likewise not in my interest to lie about such a massive church father like John of Damascus and then try to argue that he was actually against icon veneration. That would be utterly stupid. It's demonstrable that's, that he did believe in that. Yeah. Um, and even likewise, if someone was to find random texts that I never saw before that actually no icon veneration went back earlier, um, it'd be in my interest on a conscience level uh, not to try and twist that away because the truth is the truth and my twistings does not change that. You know, I like you, Paul. I think I can agree with uh, pretty much just on a surface level everything that you just said. And and Jeremiah, I would agree with you guys. Um, So you, I think you all would say that maybe um, ecclesiology, uh, would that be a primary uh, issue whenever it comes to like we hear all the time in in Reformation discussions and Protestant discussions that salvation is a primary uh, uh, doctrine? Would you guys say that ecclesiology is a primary doctrine as well? In what sense? I wouldn't even say ecclesiology is a doctrine. It's an entire field of doctrine. So in the sense of if somebody would not hold the same ecclesiology as you, uh, would that be worth separating over? Um, well, well, here's the thing. Uh, separation over something versus considering someone uh, by our perspective saved or not would be definitely different uh, different things. Um, so, for example, do I would I consider a Lutheran, a fellow brother in Christ, and he may be, all else being equal, he's on the path to heaven. Yes, I'd say that. Um, can we be in union given what they say, um, what they even themselves say about what can be, in, what is, what must be affirmed to be in communion and all that, and what they would demand of us? Uh, no, we can't, uh, in the sense of attending the same congregations and such. Um, so I, that's that's what I'd say about it. Now, with respect to ecclesiology, um, it's interesting because someone... Someone can be a faithful attending member of a, of a certain church, right? But then they privately hold to a very different ideal view of ecclesiology. But if they end up nonetheless cooperating with the one that exists, 
um, then practically speaking, there may not be an issue. Now, um, if they were coming, if they were to come into the pasture, that'd be a whole different story uh, mm -hmm. into the pre-sort or what have you. Um, they certainly would for the sake of the uh, co coherence and the continuity of the specific congregation or communion's tradition, they would have to affirm what they officially hold to. Um, so is it worth splitting over? I mean, again, it, it would depend. It would depend on what they actually say and what they do with that. So right. that's extremely broad of a question. Because you had made a statement uh, just a little bit ago that if somebody's excommunicated from the Anglican Church, you would consider God's curse on them, correct? Yes, yes. If if uh, provided they were actually they actually are guilty of what they claimed and what uh, of what they did or uh, and all that, and that what they did really is an excommunicable, anathematizable offense. Yes, I'd say. But that. what? So wouldn't that, in a sense, be saying that they have either lost their salvation or are not saved at that point? Well, I sure, think the, I think the question would be ecclesiology, the ecclesiology doctrine question. Yeah, I, I, no, I right. I'll just set it up that way. Right. Yeah, I, I, the the way that I thought it was framed would be like, would someone be excommunicated because they didn't believe that bishops were biblical? I I I don't think that yeah. a person would be excommunicated for that. Right. No. I I I mean, I don't know the Anglican Church, right? So you're right, though. I was uh, I got onto a different subject, um, but I just wanted to kind of clarify. Uh, okay, what yeah. Paul was saying there, given that he yeah. said both of those things. So, so thank you for that. Uh, but yeah, okay, so okay. let's do this real quick. Um, I want to hear from our other panel, right? Uh, we're at an hour now. And, uh, and so I want to, do you, uh, Priscilla, Mitch, uh, do you all see uh, ecclesiology as a primary doctrine, uh, such as if, uh, you know, we don't have bishops or, or, or presbyters or or however y'all would phrase that, whether or not what ecclesiology you hold is the subject, is the concept of ecclesiology. Like Mitch said, there's, or, or not Mitch, but Paul said, there's a whole bunch of doctrines that go into this. Are those doctrines primary according to y'all or, or how would you view ecclesiology as secondary um, issue? I would say it's secondary because it's more of a preference, even though, you know, it is kind of a big deal of the structure of how a church is set up. But I think um, at the end of the day, like, a Lutheran and then like myself, non-denominational, like I don't have that. I just have a pastor and then elders of the church. Um, I, th I believe that we just do the church differently, a little bit differently, but I don't think it's as far as salvaic. I think it's just preference. If you don't like the way that the structure is within this specific local institution, you can go to this one. And God is so diverse that I believe, like, um, like uh, Jeremiah was saying in the article, like it's more of the the invisible church makes up the visible church kind of thing. That it almost equates to it is what I feel like that the blog was saying, like the invisible church, the body of Christ, like the people who make up, you know, the elect. Um, ultimately, <laughs> when they go out and you know produce good fruits, and they're they're doing things within the church and just the community. I believe that is that then becomes the visible church. Um, so for me, I just believe it's a matter of preference because so long as you believe in faith alone, um, that you're saved by faith and it's not by works. It doesn't matter if you're Lutheran or how your church necessarily does it. But when you start saying that it is salvaic, I think that's when it becomes <clears throat> like, 
don't know how. So whenever you make ecclesiology a primary doctrine, then or, or doctrines, then you get into sticky territory. All right. So Mitch, yeah. uh, I've got, yeah. I want to ask you this. So and, and this really goes for the whole panel, but I'd like to get Mitch's uh, answer first, and then uh, Dale and David, you guys can take back over because I think I'm done with this line of questioning after this. How do we discern primary and secondary doctrines uh, using the concept of scripture alone? That question's for me. Uh, Mitch, yes. Yeah. So uh, again, sorry, what was the question again? How do we discern the concept of primary and secondary doctrines using scripture alone? How do we, yeah, okay. So um, maybe I'm not understanding your question or gonna struggle answering it, but salvation alone according I can to clarify. Yeah, please. <clears throat> Okay, so we do not have a specific list in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter um, of this is primary, this is secondary, this yeah, is right. worth splitting over, this is yeah. not worth splitting over, right? And yet I've just asked our panel, do you consider uh, ecclesiology doctrines to be Correct. primary or secondary? And I think all of them have said at this point, you know, it's a secondary issue. So how do we come right. to the understanding using scripture to discern yeah. primary and secondary issues worth splitting over, worth not splitting over. Yeah. Okay. That's better. So the, from what I've seen, from what I've, you know, uh, from what I've studied, uh, the primary uh, issues within scripture, the salvific stuff that is explicit uh, within scripture. Uh, so it's easy to write, but there are other doctrines that we would consider non-essentials such as, you know, you, you know, should we be vegetarians or not? Romans 14. And it comes down to conscience, and there's you know there's, there's other things within scripture that the Bible's just not a hundred percent explicit on. There, there's room for, to move around, which is why we have you know the different sociologies um, and eschatologies, and there's there's the, you know, the, the the position on baptism. Uh, with reference to ecclesiology, I would I, I would be very worried if that's a primary issue. I know the, the I'm. I'm almost certain the previous church that I went to uh, would see it as a primary doctrine uh, because there's only two reasons why you leave that church. You're either a backslider or you're a rebel. Uh, and um, you're a rebel if you disagree with them. So they would have a translation of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 18, that, uh, which is, you know, God sets the members in the body just as he pleases. They would have a, an issue saying, hey, if you got saved in this church, this is God's will for you. This is God's address for you. And you must remain here. And so I had an issue with that, as um, I think all of us should. Uh, and another one's Romans 13, 1 to 7, talking about how um, how the pastor and is if you if you rebel against the pastor, um, then that's rebellion. Uh, when that's actually not the context of Romans 13 whatsoever. It's talking about civil government. So within I had a disagreement with that ecclesiology, um, and I left well my family and i left so um yeah it's, it's it, those things relating to scripture you can't uh draw out i don't think anyway you can draw out that uh, ecclesiology is a primary doctrine okay anybody else i'm um, going back to what mitchell was saying i do agree um i think as protestants it shouldn't really even be a question it, sh it needs to be a secondary because that's what separates us from roman catholicism and eastern orthodox because they hold church tradition so highly that if you were to ask them the question they would say of course Ecle like the ecclesiastical like setup and structure and like the visible church and invisible church like that is like primary so i think just you know we have to look at it at that 
that way too, like for them, it would be a major deal and it would be like a no, uh, like there's no compromise on that. And um, so that's, that, that kind of leans more towards Sola Ecclesia too, like that instead of Sola Scriptura. And then what Mitchell was saying, how when you do that, you give the institution um, too much power because then you give the power to the church and um, so when you make it a primary issue, then, yeah, you're going to run into a whole bunch of other issues because now every church can claim authority. And then if you like, for example, the Mormons, like if if that would be extremely dangerous, you know, um, when you start listening, when you start putting the church above the scriptures and uh, making it primary um, versus like other issues that actually matter, like salvaic issues and things that the scriptures actually speak on definitively like and very specifically anybody else i'd say um <clears throat> i'd say that the discernment of like and again there's another set of <laughs> i think with every single question i've started with well i don't like the terms that are being used but <laughs> i'll just have to do it again um i don't like the specific terms of primary versus secondary um even though yes i would hold to the uh to the categories just because of how i often see um see those words uh, utilized but i do genuinely believe um and of course i can even see in the comments some people going like oh but some people consider things primary and other secondary oh and all that. um whatever and so i actually think it is a genuinely simple exercise to see what is um what is as what is bounden on us as in in holy scripture as you must believe this and you must do this Otherwise, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Um, I genuinely believe it is a truly simple exercise. Now, that's not the same as saying it's easy. Um, it's kind of like saying, <clears throat> it's kind of like saying that, hey, uh, you have to, you have to lift this um, massive like truck tire up this slope. Okay, it's you can say that it's a simple task. It, re it involves very simple actions, but it's not easy. It's physically exhausting. Likewise, in this case, um, the Holy Holy Scripture is a very big book. It says a lot of things. Um, and it does very often mention many things and explicitly says them as things which if you believe this or don't believe this, and if you do this or don't do that, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can, like the example that, Jer uh, that, um, that uh, Jeremiah himself brought up with Galatians, where it says, anyone who preaches a gospel uh, contrary to what I have preached, let him be accursed. Um, and he says that twice, and we can see what Paul's gospel is when we read him in that letter and in others. Um, likewise, uh, Christ himself says that unless you believe that I am, uh, then see you later, goodbye, basically. I forgot the exact words he used. Um, but yes, you can actually we can actually parse through Holy Scripture and discern many, many things, a, a great slew of things, um, what they what the scriptures themselves say is essential, not because we read these things and then we logically deduce, oh, well, I, I believe this is essential um, because of this logical thing, this, this, that. Um, I think, I think that can, there's uh, there's some merit to uh, the other side, to the ecclesialist uh, mocking that uh, attitude. Um, but actually, no, it is discerned from, fundamentally discerned from what they actually, the, the authors of Holy Scripture themselves actually treat as the essence of the faith. What they say is without which or contrary to which, uh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You have no life in you. And there are, and that is replete all throughout the Holy Scriptures. In fact, that's their entire purpose to actually tell people, their audiences, what you must do and what you must believe. Um, now, 
just to, to nonetheless, uh, this will invite the accusation of, oh, well, you're just asking people to reinvent Christianity every time with a new generation, just read the Bible and all that, um, which is silly, um, especially coming from an Anglican perspective. Heck, even, even any non-denom, aka Baptist <laughs> perspective, um, because uh, because we accept and we take for granted that the faith is given to us, uh, even by our own parents, uh, my, my parents, and I was myself, uh, Pentecostal, they, they still are Pentecostal. And yet I, I received the faith from them. Now there were things that they do believe, which I ended up, uh, having corrected in myself because I actually sought out the scriptures. This wasn't me saying, okay, no, forget what they told me. Let's just go to the scriptures, reinvent everything from the beginning. Uh, no, I actually hadn't assumed the fault from my parents and from my teachers. And I even do have another assumed default uh, with my own uh, ministers in my uh, Anglican church. Um, and so um, and so I take that that as for granted, but then as times demand, I will, uh, if I see a challenge to what is believed, I may revisit what the Holy Scriptures themselves say. And uh, many times I've been reaffirmed in what was taught me. Um, in certain times though, I have been, uh, I have been corrected by the words of the apostles in what I should believe. Um, whether we call it primary or secondary. And so um, nonetheless, all that to say is that, no, we do by default rely on what our parents and what our teachers teach us, our ecclesial teachers, um, which is not to say that we just accept anyone who claims to be our teacher. There is a there is an inevitable for anyone of any denomination, a kind of pre-orthodoxy or proto-orthodoxy test, if you will. You do have a general, yeah, you do have a general filter of, okay, is this guy actually a reliable teacher who I should submit to or not? Um, but then after that, once you've ascertained that, then you would say, um, yes, that this, uh, I should definitely rely, take what he teaches uh, as wisdom that I should defer to unless I have solid reason to the contrary. So there is a sense in then which um, that person or persons would be, since you're submitting to them, authoritative. Would that be a fair statement? Or do you not you like say that, that again? Term? I said, I so there would be a sense in which the person that you are submitting yourself to or persons that you're submitting yourself to as your ecclesiastical teacher would mm -hmm. be in a sense authoritative. Yes. Is that fair to say? Okay. Yes, that's right. And that's, um, that's exactly, uh, exactly what Holy scripture commands of our, of our local ecclesial teachers and even of our fathers. Um, you can see in, in uh, Ephesians chapter six, for example, just out of yeah. curiosity, would you apply the same standard to the, uh, to the church fathers? Um, yeah, to a large extent, um, and not to an absolute extent, because I do not grant that they were totally unified in everything. Um, but nonetheless, what about the things they were unified in? Sorry, what about the things they were unified in, like baptismal regeneration and the Eucharist? Yeah, sure, I take that as wisdom, and actually, it is uh, in part because of what the fathers have taught that I actually have become uh, convinced of some form of baptismal regeneration. Okay. Um, and so, yes, you are to take them precisely as that. I was actually talking about this with my Anglican, uh, some Anglican friends last night. Um, when we're out, that how we ought to approach the fathers is precisely in the term that we ascribe to them, the fathers. Um, just like with our own fathers here on earth, we take for granted that they have a serious authority over us. We ought to defer and obey to them and obey them uh, as they are instructing and teaching us. And yet it's also a granted reality that they can err and that there may be times where we can come to recognize that, hey, they might have erred. Um, but mm -hmm. also the purpose of our father is not to make us uh, completely dependent upon him and everything he says for every decision we make. Um, but it is eventually, it is actually for over time to grant us the sufficient level of wisdom so that we can actually 
um, not not make our own way in the sense of like go whatever direction we want, um, but be able to strut out our own Christian life in an authentic sense and be able to approach the Holy Scriptures with clarity. Um, and so that's how I'd approach both my own father, my teachers in the faith, and the church fathers, uh, that they are people whom we must defer to, we must pay respect to. Um, and yet we can uh, come to that degree of wisdom just as uh, children who are growing into adulthood can, um, that we could eventually come to see that, hey, uh, this father these, this father or these fathers might have gotten this thing wrong, um, this one I've gotten this thing wrong. Um, and so that's that's fundamentally the approach I myself have. All right, perfect. So I'm going to step if in. I, if I could, <laughs> just, just, just really quickly. And then um, I have a follow-up well, for Priscilla thing... after you, Jeremiah. Okay. Sure. Well, I just wanted to make sure Mitchell, because Mitchell, I think, has got to go. So I wanted to make sure he had some kind of word. But uh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, Fair Mitchell. Yeah, I didn't like see that. that, so sorry. No problem. Do you have okay. like a final word that you need to say, or? Uh, not really. Not in relation to that. I think you guys have covered that pretty well. Um, but I do want to thank you guys for for having me on. It's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, Mitch, uh, do you just want to tell everybody where they can find you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of videos going on TikTok, so it'd be at Stark Theology. Uh, it's something that I'm just starting to build. It wasn't even something that I was really super interested in, but it's kind of just taking off anyway. Um, so, yeah, I'm, at, I'm, at, I'm on TikTok at the moment. Um, see if it builds from there, um, at Stark Theology. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No worries. All time. right. So That's the it. Black Doctor, I'll let you finish responding. And then after that, I do want to move yeah. on yeah, uh, to the next topic. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can we, can I ask Priscilla my follow-up question first, though, before we move on? Jeremiah, I want you to go. And then I've yeah. got a follow-up question for Priscilla. And then we can move on to the next topic, if that's okay with everybody. Fine by me. Sure, sure. I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, I was going to say, um, I actually just finished teaching on Wednesday, a Bible study lesson to our adult Bible study on the necessity of the creeds, because what we talk about in relation to Sola Scriptura is that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith, but it's not the only, uh, it's not the only authority nor the only rule of faith because the, the creeds are essential in in summarizing the things that are explicitly found in scripture that are necessary for salvation like when you read the regular fide found in irenaeus and in hippolytus and in others you find basically what is summarized in the apostles creed and is the truths of scripture um summarized in a small point so i mean like the the creeds are are essential for us to to prove that when we're looking at scripture we're not reinventing the wheel they serve as the guardrails for our interpretation so nobody is going to be you know reading the bible all alone by themselves under a tree they are reading it in light of of in short sacred tradition um and so the scripture the scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith but there's but that sole infallible rule gives us other rules by which to help us interpret it. Um, this is so, why scriptures tell us to study the show ourselves approved. Here's the issue I have with that, Jeremiah. And sure. and so just, just to clarify, right, because I don't want to make any objections. I just want to ask questions tonight, right? So yeah. how do we distinguish, right? We, we have the sole infallible rule of faith, which is the mm -hmm. scriptures, right, which is authoritative. Uh, I mean, without without a doubt, right? Like this is the way. I, I think um, not the sole infallible rule, but I think the Eastern Orthodox would agree with this, that scripture is authoritative, that Roman Catholics would agree scripture is authoritative, right? But here's my thing. 
whenever we're looking at the church fathers, right, and there's something like, for example, Priscilla said uh, in her opening statement, uh, a specific, um, basically about water baptism and how it doesn't save because she was not saved during water baptism. And yet we have an affirmation uh, from the other Paul and maybe even you, Jeremiah, that, you know, there's something that has to do with baptismal regeneration. Like there's something here, which I, I agree with you guys on that. Um, but, but my question is how do we get from in sole infallible rule of, of faith to, okay, well, this creed is authoritative. Somebody can just come along and say, I I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't agree with that creed. Um, heretics did this throughout the centuries. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what exactly do you mean by these other things other than scripture, whether it be creeds, whether it be canons of the church, whatever, how are those in any sense authoritative when somebody can just come along and say, nope, I don't agree with it? They're authoritative tools proposed by scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I looked at in my lesson, the, the scriptures give forth creeds. Like the, the very proclamation, Jesus is Lord, is a creed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, mm-hmm. Philippians chapter 2, 1 Timothy 3.16. These are creeds provided in scripture, so we have a biblical basis for them. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody claims that, you know, I just don't agree with the creeds, what do the church fathers do? They pointed them right back to scripture and said that these creeds are biblical. If you would have read the creed, as Athanasius said, you would simply be reading the words of scripture. Mm. So scripture has its highest authority. And if you're reading the creeds, a lesser authority, it points you all the way back to the first. I would agree with that. And I would also um, add that, you know, if someone did come along and say, I don't agree with that. And ultimately you don't agree with scripture because it, it, if it aligns with scripture, then like it's it just affirms or the scripture is affirming it but if it doesn't like it's not needed if it aligns with scripture it's not needed but it's good to have because it affirms that the script you know that it is true but then if it doesn't align with scripture then you can toss it out because it doesn't align with scripture we need to get an anglo-catholic in here for even more stronger language We do. We do. We do. And so, okay, I, I, so I hear what you guys are saying. And for the most part, I think I would agree with it, right? Where we start getting into sticky situations is, for example, we have the, the, the sentence of Dort, where we see, you know, um, uh, Calvin or, or not Calvin, but, um, but the guys, they, they did this where the tulip acronym comes from. Right. And so the Armenians come later, and I forget their technical name off the top of my head. I've been thinking a lot of the remonstrance. Thank you, Jeremiah. I knew you'd, yeah. you'd be able to get that for me. Um, but but they come along and they say, no, we, we don't agree with this. But this is just affirming what Scripture has said, right? And so in that sense, if it's reaffirming what Scripture has said, then I think, I mean, it, it wouldn't be too far of a stretch for me to say if it's reaffirming what Scripture says, then in that sense, it's infallible if it's reaffirming what Scripture says. But then you have, and and you really see this today, I really think this, uh, because we see it all the time. I don't agree with that interpretation of Scripture, though. And so it ultimately falls back on my interpretation of how this text should be read. So I guess my question at this point would be, how do we, and, and, and how do Protestants, namely, justify exactly what Scripture is actually saying when you have so many different people saying that, well, it, it doesn't actually say this? What what's our what's our basis to go to, um, 
for affirming the truth of scripture. So there's totus scriptura, which is like basically you're allowing the scripture to interpret itself. Um, you know, as you read it as a whole, like everything, every, no matter where you go, it's, it all intertwines together. And then, um, yeah, I lost train of thought right now. No, it's okay. That's but would you, would um, you uh, like, like me to answer? Yeah. 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 Know, crap. Sorry. I just lost my window. <laughs> Everybody loses a trailer. Right? For a second. Sorry, okay. Now I'm back. Um, yeah, good question, obviously, because obviously some people come along and they'll just say, um, why, why uh, this person disagrees with what you say about Holy Scripture. How do you know? My own answer in some would basically be that, look, someone who is of a sound mind and one which doesn't expose itself, um, doesn't expose the possessor of that mind to danger um, and is devoted, it, the person's devoted, their mind is devoted to piety, to a love of truth. And uh, they will eagerly meditate upon those things, which God has placed within the power of mankind that is, has subjected to our knowledge. Um, and they will make advancement in them, uh, rendering them uh, easy to him by means of daily study. That's, that's my basic answer. And these things are such as they fall under uh, plainly, uh, clearly and unambiguously set forth in the Holy Scriptures. Would you, would you agree with that, Tyler? In one sense, yes. In another sense, no. Well, I hope you um, do agree because I just quoted Irenaeus. So <laughs> I would... I've been well, wanting to do that for so long. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're cute. So... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> if he's not authoritative, then hmm, no. But uh, look, so uh, I... Look to chapter 27 if you want to check against heresies. <laughs> can you send me that link, actually? Yeah, we'll do. We'll do. Please, I appreciate it. Have a chat. Do, Jeremiah, is there anything that you would like to say? No, I'm good. I, no? I, I remembered what I was going to say. So I oh. said I would rather take my um, I would rather take my chances with the Holy Spirit leading me and guiding me as I read the scriptures and and knowing that there's going to be like thousands of other people within Protestantism that might ruin it for the rest of us Protestants. Mm -hmm. then take my chances with a church that has it completely wrong. Like mm -hmm. you're, cause you're letting the church do it for you. Like you're letting the church interpret scripture for you and they have it completely wrong. I'll take my chances with being part of the very small, small minority within Protestantism and allowing the Holy spirit to guide me and knowing that there's going to be a lot of incorrect interpretations. Um, mm -hmm from other Protestants that might ruin it for us. Okay. Yeah. Would, you, would you like me to give a more, not that my answer wasn't serious. I do genuinely believe that I, uh, I'm i in agreement with Irenaeus on this issue, but would you like me to give more, like more direct answer? Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, it's, look, it's it's an inevitable issue. That's, that's what I simply say. It's just a, a more or less brute fact reality that with everything, uh, anyone in any tradition <clears throat> will come to different interpretations of things and that these are, fundamentally in a in a psychological sense phenomenological sense um everyone is their own judge if you will um so even if you come to affirm that the orthodox church is the true church for example um well why did you come to that if you were a convert you weren't cradle why why did you come to affirm that and presumably uh, among the most common reasons it will be because well this is the this is the uh, true this is the canonical boundaries of the true church. They have apostolic succession and they affirm the doc the doctrine of the unanimous consent of the fathers, so on and so forth. 
Um, all such judgments which are predicated on one study of history. Um, so there's really no way around that. In the exact same way where a Protestant may say, I, I submit to what Christ and the apostles say, and I and um, yeah, I submit to their authority. And then of course there'll be the criticism. Well, uh, how do you know? Uh, how do you know that this is what they say? And you're not interpreting it wrong. Um, the exact same thing can be leveled against anyone uh, who who converts to a certain uh, ecclesialist uh, church, because even if they don't do much scriptural interaction, which ironically enough sometimes they do, they will appeal to they will they will appeal to privately interpreted scripture passages in order to affirm that this church has apostolic succession or this doctrine or so forth. E either way, they do it with the fathers. Um, and so that's just to establish that it's a you know, uh, universal reality. And so what I'd simply say um, is, well, how do we discern the right from the wrong? And that is fundamentally through the uh, the regular means of interpretation, call it hermeneutics, call it hexegesis, what have you. And uh, people may complain, well, people can get things wrong and all that stuff. Yes, true, people can get things wrong. And yet we take it for granted that even in areas where people there is disagreement, people can get things wrong. Uh, we nonetheless grant that there is uh, that there is a certain truth to be found, and it can be found. And that's why I'd raise um, because this exact objection was given against the Christian Church writ large by pagans, such as Celsus, for example, as Oregon uh, or Origin, as people call him, uh, attests to in his response to Celsus and his simple answer, among with other fathers. In fact, I think it's actually um, it's actually repeated. Um, either by, I think it's ever repeated by Chrysostom himself, actually, when Chrysostom, someone, yep. he addresses the hypothetical in homily 33 on, on, uh, on Acts, he addresses the hypothetical where someone says, I want to, I want to join the church, but I don't know who to join. Um, and he said, and Chrysostom simply says, read the scriptures. He who agrees the scriptures with the scriptures is the true church. And he gives the, I read it for you. Cause I have it up. You were just talking person. about this. <laughs> Sorry. Before, before yeah, I, I was going to ask you, Paul, do you mind if I read it for you? Because I have it up right here. Oh, uh, well, it, it's, it's a bit of a long passage. I was going to I was just going to summarize it. If, if people want to read it afterwards, I reckon. Um, right. And the interlocutor says, but you guys all give your own different interpretations. Who do I follow? This is the exact thing being given. And Chrysostom, um, he doesn't just say, well, it doesn't matter, read the scriptures. He actually kind of imputes the integrity of the person who asked that very question, which is very, very fascinating. Um, and so my answer is very simple and it's, and it's not satisfying to many people who give this question. I understand it because they do want a truly absolute, um, certainty to such a degree that I'd say, look, frankly, it's impossible in most things. Um, and they just have to live with that reality. Uh, it's a fact is that yes, um, people disagree with things on things. Um, nonetheless, there are, <clears throat> there are true methods that we can come to in order to rightly interpret the scriptures. Um, they are available to us and we can recognize when we are in error. Um, and ultimately, the ultimate concern should simply be that in the end, we shouldn't place too much worry on this because God does know uh, his elect. He knows his people and he will guide them to the necessary truth, to salvation. That's ultimately what matters. Thank you. appreciate that. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, Tyler, you really took us into the second question <laughs> with those lines of questioning. So we're we're well on our way there. Um, yeah, I would I would I would affirm that. And you know, I, there is this absolute, because we're people and, um, we all try to figure this out. Um, there is going to be disagreements, right. And I think that's going to be part and parcel, whether it's, uh, uh, a, got a huge governing body or a, you know, one person versus another. I mean, it's, it happens and we can see throughout church history. Uh, I mean, early on we have guys breaking away, you know, um, the Donatists, for example, I mean, we have that. So um, I, I, it comes down to this for me, and, and I hate to backtrack the whole question because this is how I would have answered 
in its entirety. I think it's a logic. I think it's logical to believe that God who gave the ability of man's body or gave the ability of man's body and mind and the, and the desire for communication would be able to communicate at a level on par with man's ability and that he would also do that. Right. So this combined with the assumption that God has a purpose in his creation and pursues his ends therein entails that God is motivated to communicate with us in such a way so as to produce the ends he desires, including the end of communicating his truth to all or part of humanity over multiple generations. That sounds so, like dispensationalism. Um, what's that? I said it kind of sounds like dispensationalism, like how God uh -oh. slowly contributed because he knew different time periods and different. Um, no, it's it's basically saying like, look, God has a desire to communicate his scripture with us, right? So I think that he's going to do that in a way that we're going to understand. And I think that a, a written document would fit that bill. So that's why that comes down to my whole idea of Sola Scriptura is that God has a written document. Um, these scriptures were um, it were amongst us as far back as we can take it. I mean, I think uh, as I was, I was telling uh, Jeremiah earlier that I think Chapman puts it up well, and I think uh, Kruger sums it up well as well. He says the biblical canon is not a creation of the church. The church instead is creation of the canon, you know, so the, you know, the scriptures, I think, um, even though they may not have been completed uh, in certain aspects, there's always, it's always been there. I mean, we have the father's quote, yeah. the new Testament, we, we have the father's quoting the new Testament almost so many times that we can put the new Testament together <laughs> with that. Of mine of like when yep. the Catholic church is like, who gave you the Bible? And it's like, really? Mm -hmm really like you think right. like well, basically what happened with the catholic church is like everybody all worked together and then they got past the baton at the very end and then they took the credit for it that's how i view it right. whenever they say they put the canon together which even <laughs> if that's true it's like well who gave you the bible though who made it public protestants because reformation otherwise it would have still been in latin and it would not have been accessible to the lay people. Your the authority, if you want to go back truly, then give it back to the priest only. Like take all your Bibles out of your house, give them back to the priest, and make everything Latin again. Because it was because of Protestants that we have the Bible, not the other way around, not because of them. I don't know. It just it was a team effort, and even with the the Jews too, like putting together the Old Testament and all the scribes and the scrolls. And it's just so arrogant to say that they really believe that they put the kin together. So and Jeremiah, I mean, they might have, if you want to say that, oh. like the, the bounded Bible, um, but they didn't give us the scriptures and I don't know. Yeah. Well, I who's, think, who's what they, I'm, Priscilla? Here, I'm sorry. I just want to, oh, I missed okay. that part. So like I typically leave out the East because, um, well, it's separated the East and the West. And so I mainly focus on the West. So when I say Catholic Church or the Roman Catholic Church or they, I'm pretty much referring to the West because the East to me is not really even of a concern in my opinion. Okay. I was just going to point out that pretty much the entire top row was just resting their hands, on, <laughs> resting their head on their hands throughout this entire thing. And I thought it was pretty cool. That's just me. <laughs> There are some things that I do agree diversity. with the East and some things that I do agree with um, 
with the Roman Catholics. Um, I just think there's faults, like there's there's things that we have to each of us that's very exclusive that we all offer only within our faith tradition. But then at the same time, like I just don't like the hypocrisy when there's all these faults pointed out in Protestantism. But it's like, well, no, the East has some issues too. You guys disagree among yourselves as well. And Catholics as well, they disagree amongst themselves. But the argument for that is like, well, it's not over the Salvaic issues, but it's like, it kind of is. Right on, right on. Tyler, do you have anything you want to follow up with on that before that? Mm-hmm. And, and I think well, before that, before that um, I, I do think what you're saying here, Priscilla, when it comes to scripture and stuff, that the apostolic teaching was the substance of what would later be the New Testament. I mean, I think that's what you're, you're summing it up there saying. No, I'm just saying that the, uh, oh, yeah, 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 especially that, like, they didn't, I mean, the Old Testament was all, already around. It was always there long before um you know the early christians and so the new testament came after obviously jesus died so if anything they only put together the new testament they didn't put together the, the old testament and right yeah. no i hear you i hear you tyler did you have anything you wanted to follow up with well i guess let's so let's dive into a little bit of history so since everybody here um would hold to the protestant canon of scripture not the roman catholic not the eastern orthodox uh where can you tell me where and when this specific canon was recognized? As a as a historian, I would say in all the other previous canons, um, the canon issue is a bit more shaky than both um, both the ecclesiasticals and the quote unquote Protestants want to make it. Um, because in relation to the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha has fallen in and out of canon. And even Craig Trulia, an Eastern Orthodox man, has said that the Apocrypha is still uh, comes in and out of canon, even among modern Eastern Orthodox bishops. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the position that I take and the majority of the church has taken, especially the Protestant churches, is found within not only the Belgic Confession, but specifically found in Article, um, Article 6 of the 39 Articles, where it says here in relation to the Apocrypha, after it lists the Old Testament canon, it says, and the other books, as Jerome saith, the church does read for an example of life and instruction of manners, but yet does not apply them to establish any doctrine. And then he lists the Apocrypha. It then says, all the books of the New Testament, as they are commonly received, we do receive and account them as canonical. So that is the Protestant view. Protestants read them in church. And even in the, uh, in the book of homilies, they quote from the Apocrypha and sometimes call it scripture, but it is not the only, but, but we do not build doctrines only from them, only in tandem with what we find in the 66 accepted canon, doctrines can be found upon them. However, the, the, the Apocrypha has always been found in the, um, in the church Catholic and especially in the Protestant churches until the, the high Puritans and, and the Presbyterians. Um, I and think it was sectioned on its own in the middle, right? Like, especially when the King James Version came out, the original 1611, it was the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, literally its own separate thing, and then the New Testament. And so, and yeah, like but, you were saying, it was always in and out. And there's not necessarily an issue with the apocrypha. It's just the fact that when you start calling it inspired as well, 
and then you say collectively the 73 is the canon, like that's not correct because it, like, first of all, apocrypha in itself means not inspired or um, like just not Holy Spirit inspired um, or I, I don't know what the second one was. It was like fictional or non-historical text or something. Um, yeah, the, 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 the term apocrypha comes in and out of it, it, it changes. The definition changes depending mm -hmm. on the person using it. Well, then let's go to deuterocanonical because yeah, that is that something that is also yeah. called. And deutero, like in Deuteronomy, those are the second laws, right? They're not the first. See, and then that's how also going back to that original question, how do you know what's primary and what's secondary? Deutero means second. So the apocrypha is the deutero canon, meaning the secondary canon. It's not something that's um, like infallible or authoritative like there's some some inspired within it but not all of it and for that reason i think ultimately it's not included in the official canon and so the same thing with deuteronomy those are like the second sets of laws they're not like the primary they're just secondary things yeah paul you were going to say something um, I was going to say as a more direct answer, you can, um, you can find a, a few direct witnesses in the early church to, um, nearly, if not exact Protestant canon. you can find, um, you can find Mel uh, Melito, the Bishop of Sardis from like the mid second century. He pretty much gives an exact, um, of the 39 book canon, except for, uh, Esther, um, which I, which I would personally say is not very much because I, I genuinely cannot think of one time I've ever cited Esther. As scriptural, and so that, that one I can kind of think of. Well, okay, it's not Athanasius not, not too. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's numerous. There's a curious thing of the uh, quote unquote proto canonicals um, that Esther tends to be quite a bit left out. Um, but otherwise, the more important, I think, I think that's kind of just here or there for the question because the, the church fathers they're all over the place in the canon. You can find some who um, you can find some who affirm something closer to. Uh, a pro very close to, if not exactly, a Protestant canon. You can find those who are very close to, if not almost exactly, a Western Deutero canon or an Eastern Deutero canon uh, because they're not the same thing. Um, and even with the Anglican Communion, for example, we are actually um, not precisely a Western view of the Deutero canon because if I was to read uh, homily, uh, the little bit from homily, uh, sorry, Article 6 itself, where it speaks out of the Deutero canon, yep. um, what's interesting... Uh, is that it speaks of proto-canonical first book of Esdras and second book of Esdras, um, which would be Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, but then if you yep. look at the proto, uh, the Deuterocanon, because it does affirm Deuterocanon as things which are to be read in the church for instruction in life, but not application for doctrine, it'll give the usual stuff that even the West accepts, like Tob uh, uh, Tobias, Judith, uh, the rest of the book of Esther, book of wisdom, Sirach, the, the, the like. But it also includes third and fourth Esdras, which is very, very interesting. Um, and so even the Anglican view is kind of separate. And so in terms of an immediate question of where I would get my canon from, I'd simply say Article 6 by the authority of the Church of England, um, as was declared, um, because I do accept them as my traditional uh, authority and I, I, I receive that as such. Um, and there is nothing that, uh, because I am obligated, but I'm not necessarily conscience bound to believe everything that they say, um, and but I am conscience bound to defer to them, to submit to them, and thus, I must listen to them and uh, defer to their authority in what they say um, and uh, and even hold to what they say unless there is actually to be found superior reasoning, superior truth that they are actually wrong. Um, and so I may, I may uh, 
as long as like the Deuter canonicals and all that, because I've kind of strongly argued against most of them being canonical. Um, but otherwise, because of how they define the Deuter canonicals as things which are read, um, not necessarily for the establishment of doctrine, I'm totally cool with that. And I thus submit to the authority of my church that if I was to become a priest in the in my diocese, which I do intend to one day, um, that these books are, including the Deuterocanonical ones, are the ones that are permitted to be read uh, in the churches. If I wanted to add another one, like for example, I'd love to preach on First Clement. Like First mm-hmm. Clement, I wish there was a New Testament Deuterocanon and that'd be right at the top. Um, the why did you pick your elders out? <laughs> exactly. Now, here's the thing. I wouldn't do that by my own authority. I would actually seek the authority of my bishop to do that. Um, and so, um, yeah, there is a real meaningful sense of authority. Um, otherwise, though, I'd say that there's good precedent for the Anglican uh, d- uh, decision for the proto-canon um, in church history. So that's ultimately how I'd answer that question. I definitely request to read and, and of course, preach from the Epistle to Diagnetus as well. That oh, would be I great. <laughs> Uh, right on. Um, so Tyler, does that answer your question? Because um I do wanna I do wanna um well I want to clarify some things because um you, you know we do claim sola scriptura, right? And there's a difference between canon and scripture, and I want that to be distinguished. And I think Jeremiah, do you have anything that you would like to say on that distinguishing yeah, between just, scripture just... and canon? Yeah, just specifically, um, scripture is what has been, you know, inspired, written down by God. And canon is simply our our acknowledgement of what has been inspired and written down by God. So the church doesn't create the canon or or doesn't create scripture, it receives scripture. And out of that, we we get canon lists. So mm-hmm. those things, I mean, there there hasn't been a quote unquote infallible definition of the canon until like in the west the council of trent like even other roman catholics acknowledge this there hasn't been an official infallible canon list until the council of trent so well, before so that I'll say that it was all it was always it was just reaffirmed though because when you bring that up because i've brought that up before sure. and i'm like you guys didn't make it official canon until 15 something in response to the reformation and a lot of them will say no it was always that but because of the reformation you know like it's like with heresies anytime a heresy pops up the church has to step in and like declare something and so they're like Mm -hmm. by 1500 in response to the reformation um that's when it was it was just re uh what is it reaffirmed reaffirmed yeah yeah Yeah. the 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 unfortunate Mm -hmm. fact of that is that that's just simply not the case Rufinus, after the after the uh, the councils of Rome and Laodicea, lists a canon list that is similar to ours. And even if um, uh, Cardinal Cayetan, unfortunately, he died before uh, the Council of Trent, he would have objected to Maccabees being scripture. So even even those in in Roman Catholicism, so much so that they are cardinals, would not agree with the full list of canon that was listed at Trent. So to yeah. simply brush that off and say that it was assumed immediately goes back to my article about the invisible church and would actually dis- dis- uh, disagree with the actual evidence that we have in relation to those within Rome during that time be- immediately before Trent. And even Jerome, like from my understanding, from what I know, um, he was the one that put the Latin Vulgate together and he, because yeah. he was one of the only few at the time that because Hebrew was like a dying language or I don't know exactly what, what happened with that, but um, 
to my understanding, he was just one of the few. And he was like translating it for the church, the Catholic church. And then he was like, wait, I don't, guys, I don't think the Apocrypha should go in here. And then they threatened him with excommunication. Nobody yeah. wants to be communicated. But yeah. Talks about uh, that. So we ended up putting, he ended up doing it. Yeah. I mean, that article still quote. We also, me. we also, uh, we know that there is a, there's a lot of separation between the Jews and, and the Christians very early on. And many of our church fathers didn't know Hebrew. I mean, probably, I would say probably 90% of them. <laughs> I think uh, origin and Jerome were probably the only ones that, that knew it at the time. Right. That's a huge, that's, 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 in, that's very, very, culture, very like that is huge. That's a big deal. And from Melito, the Melito, the Melito, Melito left to get what the Jews had in Palestine. So he actually um, left his congregation to get, get the, the canon that the Jews were uh, promoting at the time, um, or as we say, canon, you know, but their scriptures that were laid up in Palestine. So um, that's yeah. where he gets his list from. So, yeah, he, he says here specifically um, in his letter, yeah. He says, Melito to his brother Onesimus, since you have often in your zeal, uh, zeal for the word expressed to have extracts made from the law and the prophets concerning the Savior, um, I have also desired to have an accurate statement of the ancient books as regards to their number and their order. I have endeavored to perform the task, knowing your zeal for the faith and your desire to gain information in regard to the word. So he, he says, accordingly, I went to the east and reached the place where these things were preached and done and learned accurately the books of the Old Testament. And I send them to you as written below. So he lists them all and the reasons why he did it. Mm -hmm. And that was right Athanasius, right, Jeremiah? No, Melito. Uh, Melito, okay, fair enough. So I guess my last question on this uh, topic, and then we can move uh, on, because if I'm not mistaken, let's see here, Melito lists Wisdom of Solomon, and then even Athanasius lists uh, Baruch in the Epistle of Jeremiah. He, if I may, um, he says wisdom, but that actually was a common way of speaking about Proverbs. Yes, yes. Yep. And, and oh, this Rufinius. is the discussion that David so, and I yeah, had with the, yeah, with Rufinius. the uh, uh, Tyler was the guy, there, right? Yeah. So Rufinius was the guy that that actually corrected that when he transferred that over to mm -hmm. uh, to Latin. Um, yeah, he was like, "Hey, look, this is a common thing that happened in this time. How they spoke of proverbs." So it was Rufinius that confirmed that. You know, and I still find um, it correct. interesting that scholars are disagreeing with that. Um, with, with and I, uh, yeah, scholars uh, too, because there, so, a but, lot of them, a lot of them don't know don't know that part of church history. So I mean, there are right. a lot of people. Right. Yeah. So, but I like, well, find a scholar for any side, any position. Honestly, like anything you want. Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like. Nah, exactly my point, Priscilla. So, um, so I guess so. I don't want to get into that. So, my question then is, what is your and and let's go. Uh, we can do it any order, but I want to hear specifically from Priscilla, from Jeremiah, and from Paul and David, even from you. But what is your specific reasoning for holding to the Protestant canon and not the Roman Catholic canon? Uh, for example, the Council of Trent that was brought up, or even the Eastern Orthodox canon that was confirmed at the Council of Trullo, uh, the Sixth Ecumenical mm -hmm. Council. Oh, mm -hmm. go ahead. I would say for the Catholic, it's really just comes down to the seven books, which is easy to disprove. Um, it's just dealing with the Apocrypha. Because you like, like, a what's his name was saying earlier, we all share the baseline 66. So if you want to come down to it, who really added books to the canon? Because if we all have 66, we didn't take away y'all, the other two 
added. And um, so for the Catholics, Apocrypha, easily disproven. As far as the East, I get told different things every day when I talk to Eastern Orthodox. Um, as far like um, as far as the number of the canons, I was told um, one night seventy seven, then um, eighty, and then somebody else commented and they were like, "Well, I was told there was eighty three, and then I was like, "Oh, I thought there were eighty two or like you just don't know. Like there's no set canon, and it kind of comes off as like open canon and and you know, yeah. it's, obviously we, we believe in a closed canon. And so to me, that's very, I take caution in a church that doesn't even have a set number of books for their canon. Although some will argue, because I did ask a very close Eastern Orthodox friend, and he said um, that it's just how you group them, apparently. Um, people just group them differently. But to me, that's still very strange. Like, we don't, I don't know, we don't do that, but... I mean, that's that's one reason. One main reason I'm not EO is like no set official canon. It kind of seems very open. And I can't, you know, if you're a church that says you were around for 2000 years and there's just that's too too much of a mystery. If your scripture, if you, you don't, don't got your scripture right, what else is there that you don't have? Right. You know? So the first five centuries of the church would have been a no go for you then. Well, that's debatable yeah. because. Um, the West has history that could go against the East during that first five. No, I'm just talking about the fluctuation of the canon you know, that we see in the first five centuries. That we, whenever we get a different um, church, yeah, father like, a, issue one, there's a there's a difference between them. That's all I'm saying. It's a joke. Yeah. So yeah, because uh, another Eastern Orthodox guy um, sent me a picture of like all the fathers that had their own like you know where you put dots on them like you have all the books and then they put the per person's name the church father's name and which ones they and they're just all so different um so i think no two human beings on the face of the earth are gonna agree on everything so to think that about the church fathers and like i mean it was the early church they were trying to figure a lot of stuff out we're talking about a time period where light was not invented as mentioned church fathers didn't know any hebrew these guys were fighting Gnosticism, um, dealing with that, just a whole bunch of stuff. So to me, it's like they're definitely not the the church is not infallible. Right. Um, I would say, yeah, the, the reason I don't accept like the Eastern Orthodox, because it depends on the Eastern Orthodox. Right. So you look at like uh, the Greek Orthodox um, and, and my thing is consistency. We all have the same consistent. Uh, um, books, right? Except for the Apocrypha that's added. So, I mean, you have the Russian Orthodox um, who don't believe in uh, four Maccabees, right? But the Greek Orthodox do. I think that's right anyway, at least the list I have here. The Coptics don't hold to third or fourth Maccabees, you know? I mean, there's no consistency among the Orthodox. And I don't blame them because they're not dogmatic on it, right? So even, I don't think they officially declared it, like you said, Tyler. I don't think they were ever dogmatic. It was, their their council on scripture was kind of like the council of Jimea. You know, they weren't dogmatic on 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 uh certain things there and then you know the catholics don't hold to uh psalm 151 um four maccabees three maccabees uh or the prayer of massa right manasseh so i mean there's you know i don't i i want consistency and i think the historicity problem that the apocrypha does have where they do have 
blatant historical errors is a mark that it's not inspired. Um, so I would say that that's a problem for me. Um, and the fact that there's multiple authors to some books and stuff like that, or something like Baruch says that, oh, this is the handmade, this is the, the secretary of Jeremiah, but we found that Baruch is written in Greek, which that wouldn't have been able to happen back then because Jeremiah's, uh, uh, Baruch would have had to have written in Hebrew. And we just have no evidence that, uh, actually we have quite the contrary, a lot of evidence saying that, uh, the the baruch is actually written in greek in its style and manner so i mean in every way it was written during uh, a greek speaking era during a hellenized era matter of fact going so, back, going but back that's just me oh sorry no go ahead no go ahead priscilla um I'm done. so in in regards to the canon though too um with the old testament and the new testament so you you also come down to the argument of, of um, or the issue of this using the Septuagint versus the Masoretic text, right? Because we mm. use the Masoretic, but the Greeks, or I mean, not the Greeks, the Eastern Orthodox guys, um, they they um, use the Septuagint because, you know, Jesus quoted from it. It's more accurate. And it is accurate. But um, to me, just because they're, it, just because it's accurate in, in some places doesn't mean you have to accept all of it. And I remember talking to an Eastern Orthodox friend and they were like, no, it kind of does that. you. It, it does mean that you have to accept all of it, because if you accept some of it as being more accurate than the Masoretic text, then you have to accept all of it, which is ironic because they don't even hold to that. Eastern Orthodox, for their Orthodox study Bible, the Old Testament is the Septuagint and the New Testament is the New King James Version, which is, by the way, put together by Puritans, which um, are Calvinist. So they do have some Calvinism in there. Um, they also had a Calvinist bishop um, at some point. Um, it's just way too mystical for me. There's also, there's too many mysteries when, when in the scriptures tell, tell us um, God has made, you know, the mystery that was once a mystery, he has made it known. And yes, there's some things that we're not going to understand, admittedly, but I think they overkill it when they make, it almost seems like it, almost nothing, not, everything's speculation. It's like Ariel Tollhouses, for example, I don't want to get too into that, but one, one person said it's just speculation. So, and then another person said, no, whoever's saying it's speculation, they're heretic. It is, it's not dogmatic. Um, but I'm like, well, then if it's not dogmatic, that makes it by default, like speculation. Like, I don't. Um, and yeah, so it's just uh, too much mysticism for me. Um, I think the West, at the very least, if, if I were to join one, it would definitely be with, I don't like the Pope. And I do respect the East for not having that because they do have a bishop among equals. They don't believe a Pope should, like they believe in a, uh, East believes in a primacy, whereas Roman Catholics believe in a supreme supremacy. And so there are differences that, oh, oh, and things such as, and I don't want to go on too much of a rant because we were talking about the canon, but I haven't talked much. And I, I feel like there's so many topics that we could have, you know, discussed. And I've written notes on things as we were going and so many things crossed my mind. And um, so for the East, I do respect that they don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. They don't believe that um, she was 
conceived sinless, but they do still believe she lived a sinless life. She just wasn't conceived sinless. Um, to my understanding, they do still say that she was ascended bodily, like bodily ascension into heaven. Um, Door yeah, mission close, specifically. Huh? Door mission specifically at her death. Mm-hmm. After death? I'm sorry. Yeah, just when, when she died, her body was carried oh, up yeah. Oh, yeah, assumed into heaven. Um, and But I do think, as far as Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Protestants, we all need to believe in the Theotokos. I believe everybody has that, right? Like Mary is the mother of God. Um, I was very confused on that because I was like, she's not the mother. Because when you say the mother of God, that almost implies like all three. Um, but they're just referring to Jesus in the incarnation, who is both God and both man in the flesh. So um, after that was clarified, I was like, okay, well, you know, all it means is God bearer. It doesn't mean mother of God. It means God bearer. Right on. Josh, you've been quiet, man. I, I got to get you in here, brother. I have to I have get you been- in here. I have been listening. Uh, I've been listening very carefully as much as I can. Uh, there's been a lot of a lot of voices, a lot of input. And Tyler's questions have been absolute fire so far. So I didn't really feel the need to be a, a disruption to the flow of what was happening. Um, I know that I usually have a great deal to say or would actually interrupt to bring questions. But Tyler's been pretty on top of it. Um, the The... The thing that's kind of burning in the back of my mind is that I I am not sure if I missed it or if I misunderstood, but I don't remember uh, hearing a definitive answer to the question about why the Protestant canon um, from among other canons uh, and and where the authority to distinguish between those things would would lie but i think that that's probably because it's a really awkwardly placed question to consider the idea of uh because i think jeremiah's answer was probably the closest thing that i would say was like a consistent answer is the 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 books that have been in in the consensus that don't change throughout the lists of canons are basically the ones that we would understand to be the canon and uh, the idea of getting around saying that the scripture's authority would have to be uh, in some sense um, uh, a- answerable to the, the church's consensus is saying that the church is acknowledging scripture, not creating scripture, I believe is how you put that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that that's probably the closest to an explicit answer uh, that we're going to get is these seem to be the ones that aren't disputed. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I, I think there seems to be a particular view going throughout church history that there are these that are considered to be without dispute and then these that are considered with dispute but are still read and, and used within the church because the church doesn't necessarily throw out anything that's not absolutely heretical. Okay, fair enough. So I, I guess they, then I then I did understand. I just – I I – I'm not sure what I was expecting in addition to that as an answer necessarily. Um, Mm. But I I am kind of curious because there was some talk of it uh, uh, earlier when when Priscilla was mentioning, um, you know, the way that she uh, learned to read scripture on her own uh, and interpret scripture and that she's been doing that. Um, And and I, I can say that 
in my own upbringing, um, I learned, let's say, how to uh, ask ask the 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 appropriate ground level questions about how to interpret a text uh, mm-hmm. so that you're not just kind of on the fly making it up or saying, well, it says this to me, right? That you're that you're really trying to be true to what the author was actually saying. Um, and in some sense, we have to rely on, you know, I, I, there's 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 this kind of uh, like mot- motif or trope that 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 kind of gets touted over and over is that scripture interprets scripture. And that was said earlier. Um, and and I, I feel like that's probably one of those things that, uh, if I'm honest, we should probably avoid saying as necessarily uh, readily as we do sometimes, because it almost it almost is an attempt to bypass the question of the problem of interpretation. If, if the, if the, the modern world and the 1900s has taught us anything, it's that humans are creative in the weirdest ways and we can interpret anything in any way. It, right. it, and, and it's just kind of like one of those things where you, you honestly want to say to yourself, there's no way that you could read this and get it wrong. No, I promise somebody will. Right. <laughs> And, and so that, 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 that fact that, that we're going to look at those things and we would say scripture interprets scripture. What we really mean by that is the scripture is a hyperlink document where all the parts are in reference to the other parts and that's good. And it can get you to a certain degree, but then there's still those, those uncomfortable edges of uncertainty that especially in the Protestant arena, we have a a very difficult time dealing with. And that, that's why there's so much uh, uh, fractionation and, and animosity between differing groups and differing views. Uh, and so I, I kind of want to just ask and, and call the elephant in the room. Uh, what, what, what is the Protestant answer for the church right now, speaking with such a divided tongue in the way that the Protestant world has kind of brought about this exponential increase in that fractionation? Because it's not like the, the Protestant church is the first time the, 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 um, the, the church had 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 fractured right but we've seen an exponential explosion in fractures since the 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 western church had a reformation and the protestant movement has taken hold and then there's all these different uh uh branches that have come off of the main root of that disagreement with the centralized authority of the government system of the church of rome like we we like there there was a there was a break off and then there's the like we were talking about before this 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 break off so it's like i i know we all can kind of feel it and see it right there it's written across the sky that christianity speaks with a divided tongue so now what i feel like that's a consequence a natural of something that naturally that's going to happen um i don't think it's our jobs necessarily fixed because people are always going to do it. I feel like the Roman Catholics and East don't have that problem because they put the church above um, like that in that way. Whereas when, when we hold to scripture, that's something that's bound to happen. People are bound to misinterpret it. And even within Catholicism, people misinterpret it because they have the catechism and now you have people misinterpreting the catechism. And um, that's why you have liberal Catholics and the trad rad Catholics. And um, I think it's an issue in all groups of faith, um, even in Eastern Orthodox, especially too, as well. Um, they, the Coptics are not in, in, in uh, what is it like communion for lack of better words. Um, they're considered schismatics. Um, so it's the same difference. We have in a sense schismatics in our Protestant sect as well, um, such as like, you know, pastors who claim to be 
LGBTQ and women pastors and the, the oneness Pentecostal churches and things like that. Like we also reject them. Like when the Catholics and East bring that up to us and say, you know, that's only a problem within Protestantism. It's like, no, it's really not because we also reject them. And then, but then they say that's a, what is it? Um, a no Scotsman's fallacy, right? Cause they're like, no, like they, they're in your group. So they have to be representative in some form or fashion. Well, it's like, well, if that's the case, then every person who did like two thirds of Catholics don't believe that the Eucharist is, uh, is, is the body, blood, soul, divinity, and, and, and all of that. So it's like, is that representative of Catholicism? Catholics aren't even Catholic, you know? Um, well, I know that there's always been fractionation between people just because of our idiosyncrasies. This is one of the things that I was saying was actually, in some sense, in my view, a positive is that the Protestant lens gives me, let's say, more, more access to those idiosyncrasies. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is that we are fractionating. And so my question is really now How what? It? It's yeah. not, yeah, it's not necessarily, okay. well, yeah. who has the problem and who doesn't? Mm -hmm. Humans have the problem. So the question is yeah. like, now what? Right? Like, the World Council the, of Churches. The, the, like, <laughs> you, you guys understand what I mean though, right? Like in, in, the, in, the older, in the older sense of the church, what they were trying to do was create a centralized authority for the sake of that unity so that these different fractionations could be minimized outright. That yeah. was one of the reasons for a centralized authority. And we've, in some real sense, done away with centralized yeah. authority in yeah, that we way. Could, we could get better at going out to those kinds of churches um, and, you know, preaching to them and ultimately telling them to, like, repent and showing them the true gospel and saying scripture does not agree with that, you know. And... Um, Cause I remember I heard there's a church in my town where they said, pastor Jennifer. And I was like, pastor Jennifer, or even huh. with co-pastors because they're married and they're one flesh technically, then that means they're both pastors. Mm. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> how to fix that. I think um, we could go out and pre preach to those churches um, maybe individually or as a group, your church, if you have a really good church as a Protestant, go as a group, um, community service in a, in a sense, and ask mm. if you can talk to the leaders or the pastor or whatever, and maybe sit down with them. That's what people do all the time with Mormons. You know, they ask to speak to the bishop and, and they do missionary work in that sense and evangelizing. You go out and evangelize and you prove, you disprove them with scripture. And that's like also the whole theme of apologetics is, making a defense and a case for, you know, your faith and for the, the faith. And, um, but ultimately, I think you're not going to be able to fix it. This is always going to be something that exists, always, no matter what group of faith. Um, you're always going to have issues and people who don't adhere to the church's teachings or for Protestants, you know, the scriptures. So it's always going to be something and an issue that's always around. Now you could say, how can we minimize it? And that's kind of the solution that I would have in mind. Um, I would also say that every Protestant church needs one apolog apologetic teacher, one person who teaches class, like a class for church history, because that's what Protestants lack. That's why they end up going to Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox, because Protestants are not doing a great job teaching 
church history. They just get the word and the evangel evangelical portion of it from the pastor. But I think every Protestant church needs to have one person designated to teach an apologetics class once a month or however many times and um, really like equip Protestants to go out and, and know their church history and, you know, rebuke these quote unquote false gospels or bring bringing people in and things like that. Um, that's how I would try to fix it. So let me let me jump in here real quick. And and so I want to do two things. So I want to ask Jeremiah and Paul uh, the exact same question uh, Josh asked, but I want to caveat a little bit. And I want to do that by bringing in an audience question and then mm -hmm. adding my uh, question to that. So uh, you guys have been on point tonight and uh, and I appreciate that uh, Irenaeus quote, uh, Paul. So so thank you for that. Um, I'll check that out a little bit later and then get back to you on it. Um, but so orthodoxology asks this, is Protestantism fractioning because of disagreements on the meaning of scriptures? And Priscilla's uh, question, or not question, uh, Priscilla's answer to this part of it anyway, was to go to these other churches and explain to them the, um, here, here's the accurate understanding of scripture, right? And I think so, it's more of a yes or no question. He 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 was asking: Is Protestantism fractioning? Is it breaking and like separating? Is there disunity? Yeah, because of he is he is. I'm adding to this though, oh, okay. a little bit. So yes. Yeah, so so that's that's part one of the question. So my question, then adding on and piggybacking off of what Orthodoxology is asking here, is how do we come? Do first of all, let me back up a step. Do we come to a unanimous understanding of what Scripture is saying? in the Protestant tradition, because it seems like if, you know, if we're going to go out to these other, other churches and say, this is what scripture says, right? We wouldn't be arguing amongst ourselves or in the Protestant camp, what these scriptures are actually saying. Right. And so this is where orthodoxology's question comes in. Are we fractioning because of our disagreement with scripture? Does that make sense, Jeremiah and Paul? Sure. Um, the only thing I would point out is like when we're looking at these the modern quote unquote fracturings, it's not because people actually disagree on the meaning of scripture. It's mainly because they are not holding to scripture at all. Like considering a lot of the mainline, the mainline splits in Protestantism, I mean, we had it in the um the conservative resurgence with the rise of Christian liberalism. Now we're coming across the rise of Christian progressivism. Both of those have the same problem, which is a rejection of the truth of Holy Scripture. And so, like, when it comes to the split between, you know, the Methodists right now or things in the PC uh, or the PCA and the PCUSA, um, things in the Church of England and the rest of GAFCON and the Global South, it's those who seek to affirm what the scriptures say about these particular things gathering together and splitting off from those who seek to corrupt the church in their denial of scripture. Um, and what's the solution of unity? Um, getting back to the scriptures. Um, also, um, possibly becoming based and submitting to the Anglican way. But I'll, I'll just leave things like that. <laughs> so basically, we pick a denomination. Well, I mean, it's it's something similar, simply to what um, uh, uh, to what C.S. Lewis said in um in his book *Mere Christianity*. It's not enough to simply to simply be in the hallway. Pick a room, mm -hmm. and once you pick a room, we're actually having something substantial in order to dialogue mm -hmm. with. 
And when we come together and read the scriptures and not get our, our egos in the way, because that was pretty much the thing that the main problem that happens with schism, the scriptures will lead us to truth. I mean, that's pretty much what happened in the Marburg colloquy. Um, the Zwingli and Luther agreed with 14 out of 15 points. But because of their personalities, they could not agree on the 15th and come to a conclusion. Therefore, the Reformed tradition and the Lutheran tradition were always, you know, not necessarily bosom buddies, uh, but were still separated from one another. They didn't agree on literally everything. So it was mainly the egos that's the problem, which is something that we're going to have to deal with for the rest of our lives. What was that? I think you could um, go the as Eucharist. far as Lord's Supper. The Eucharist, uh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say maybe not necessarily pick one, because if you look at the Catholic tradition and the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they have a, a diverse, you know, like for Catholics, it would be they would be called rites. And then for the East, they would be called just regions. And so for Protestants, we could have different sects like S-E-C-T-S. -E um, and and just to really kind of like, you know, the Lutherans, the um, Anglicans and um, maybe out of a handful, but I like that concept of, you know, it's not just mm. Protestant in, in a box kind of thing, like just one, because it's not even like that with Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. If uh, I may answer this now. Um, so with that question, as I've said towards the beginning, I deny that there is actually such a concrete thing as Protestantism. So for me, it actually makes no sense to speak of something like Protestantism is fractioning. Um, it's a purely abstract term, one that can be used in many different ways. Personally, I, I think it's I wasn't talking specifically about Protestants either. I was sure. saying that Christianity is speaking yeah, yeah. of a divided. Yeah, job. exactly, exactly. And I, I was thinking more immediately of the um the the the, the text question that I was given. But yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you make it Christianity in general because it actually is um and I'm glad you don't focus it on the so-called Protestants because it really is a pan-Christian problem since the very beginning. We can see um, we can see with, again, to bring up the second century enemy of Christianity, Kelsus, and he talks about how all you Christians from different places all disagree on different things. Um, and you can see pagan critics and others all the way up until time, even the hypothetical dude, dude in Chrysostom's homily, homily 33 on Acts. Um, it's always been a thing. So that's just to establish it. But nonetheless, um, pointing out that it's always been a thing doesn't actually give a solution. So what actually is a solution? You can really think of the solution in terms of really different layers and different senses. Um, one way is that, look, a, a massive part, a massive factor in many, many divisions, um, be they purely splitting in structures or just because of their disagreements on scripture or other things. Um, look, many of them are rooted in sin. That is a fact. Um, you, it's demonstrable that many such divisions are out of sinful inclinations. And so one way to solve that would be to actually promote um, promote actual holy living, holy thought um, throughout the people. Of course, that's easier said than done. Um, likewise, many such splits over scriptural interpretation. Um, look, fundamentally, uh, well, potentially both sides could be wrong. But for the sake of argument, one side is right, one side is wrong. And so one side is actually using uh, bad, um, bad, improper hermeneutical, exegetical uh, methods. And so you can point that out easily, for example, with the, uh, if, if you will, the Skittles crowd. Um, when they try to go into various various traditions and try to create their own little offshoots, like, oh, it's okay to be gay and all that stuff. And uh, look, their, their abuse of Holy Scripture is manifest. It's absolutely demonstrably uh, false. So they are, objectively speaking, uh, speak, uh, contravening the uh, authority of Holy Scripture, even if they claim to be thinking of it otherwise. 
And so that's another part of the solution um, in individual instances of division is to ensure people adopt and truly submit to and consistently apply solid hermeneutics. And this is really, I think, the most um, iffy of the potential situations where we can actually look at multiple people who may share substantially the same deep, good hermeneutical method, like uh, appealing to the language as it was to the historical context, to the near context within the text, the canonical context of the author, um, uh, and all these many different things. And yet they can still come to different interpretations on some stuff. Um, in some cases, it may just be because that part of the text is genuinely obscure. The author genuinely did not mean, if, if someone's asking a specific question, does this mean A or does this mean B? The author genuinely may not have um, intended to give a clear answer on that. He, it may maybe maybe both are totally compatible. So there are genuine situations um, where things are not, um, not even as a fault of the interpreter themselves, but that in scripture itself, there may be certain things that genuinely just are obscure. And that's why I can point back again to Irenaeus. He himself will point, look, there are some things that are given to us to know and some things that are given to God. And when we come across those things, um, we just got to leave it up into the hands of God and trust him. Um, otherwise, though, there are situations where it can be pointed out with a consistent, a true hermeneutic um, that there is a specific answer with respect to the question. Um, and yet someone who claims to hold to the same hermeneutic nonetheless rejects it. And at that point, it does... Uh, genuinely come down to look who's the one being consistent and who's the one who's prejudiced one way or another. Um, and that's ultimately really the super tough one. None of us want to believe that we are prejudiced um, in our interpretation of scripture. Um, I, I don't grant that it's possible that maybe there is someone who is genuinely super unprejudiced to the point where with respect to discerning the fundamental truth of the faith, they will consistently find it in every, in every point. Um, I personally want to aim to that. I'm not saying I am that way right now. Um, I still do every now and then have periods of introspection where I see, look, I'm trying to be consistent, but if I really am consistent on this thing, it's possible I might not be correct on this issue. And so that does require serious um, prayer and I even say fasting um, in order to really pray for God's wisdom and his strength to be able to go wherever his word says um, according to proper interpretation, not by my own interpretation, that is whatever I want to be true. That's why we can distinguish between my interpretation, that is the result of my honest study by consistent objective methods, versus my interpretation, that is what I want to be true. Um, and look, ultimately, these things can be used to solve individual situations. Um, until the coming of Christ, uh, they will, uh, unless you're closer to post mill. Um, there will pretty much never be a time where these divisions go away. There, there won't be. They'll always exist. Um, but the ultimate comfort that really renders this issue just, for me, a complete non-starter, doesn't matter, is my trust and faith in God um, because he knows who his sheep are. From the beginning of time, he knew who his sheep were, who his children are, who the elect are, if you will. Um, and he will guarantee uh, even if they don't get everything right, he will nonetheless guarantee that they come to a saving knowledge of his son and achieve a true union with Jesus Christ. Um, and so ultimately, because that is ultimately the end, that is the ultimate end. Why are we concerned with whether we have right and reliable scriptural interpretation? It is for that end of salvation. Um, and ultimately, no one's going to come to salvation by their own will, but come to faith in Christ and the knowledge of the truth by their own will, because their will autonomously um, is able to 
um, is able to come to the uh, to the knowledge of the truth. It is ultimately by God's election and who then uses the means of the world in order to lead the someone to the truth um, as he wants them to know. And so that's really my, uh, my ultimate answer. Um, divisions will exist. There's ways to get rid of it. Uh, but ultimately with certain people, there will always be these problems. There'll always be these splits. And we simply have to trust that God will bring us to his knowledge of salvation. And I also got to say something though. Uh, there's been incredible unity throughout the histories too. I mean, there's, I mean, we had, uh, uh, the Lutherans and, and, uh, and the Catholics having to come together to fight against those at Munster, you know, about whatever <laughs> went on in that craziness there, whatever bad happened, it happened. <laughs> but yeah, you I mean, mean Reformation been... Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> the Reformation Game of Thrones. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, man. Uh, but yeah, there's, uh, you know, I mean, and then there's, you know, even, uh, um, I think the the Donatists had what seven hundred or seven hundred bishops uh, at one point, and and they even attended some of the councils and stuff like that. So I mean, we did have times where there were unity too, and you know, some sometimes agreements came, and and then sometimes it it, it took a long time for uh, agreements to uh uh win the day so to speak so i mean yeah i i hear you but guys i mean i love the conversation i want to keep it going i you know theology nerds we could probably keep talking about this stuff but uh, uh we do got to wrap it maybe we'll do a part two because i think tyler wanted to do a part two for his because there's still a lot of stuff unsaid in his his program right tyler yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So we didn't touch on yeah. a few subjects like baptism yep. and things like that that right. it would be really nice to do part two yep yeah we definitely yeah, we should can. get together and do a part two and stuff like that um do we want to take audience questions david it's it, i mean we we've gotten so far afield now i think that it's time maybe 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 wait and have them come up unless you got some super chats you want to uh um put in there that have asked questions i'll put it like do this. we have it We've got super chats and we thank everybody uh, for your super chats. So if you would like to uh, financially support Faith Unaltered, um, you can give us a super chat now. We'll read it on screen. Uh, but so what we'll do is we'll read all the super chats, whether they're questions or not. And then if if there's starred uh, questions in the super chats, we'll just leave them for next time. Is that fair for everybody? Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Nice so let's. All right. Awesome. So Mitch Murphy. Pre-denominationalism is greater than non-denominationalism. Fire Orthodox Church strength. You like how I did the emojis there? <laughs> Mitch Murphy, with no infallibility outside of Scripture, how can you be sure you have an infallible list of books? So I think that's a good question for uh, the panel. Um, how you guys want to do it? Yeah, does everybody want to take a good shot at the question, or do we want to vote one person to answer this question, and then maybe a different person can answer another question? David, I think that we could just uh, do a, uh, a round robin pretty quick or okay. um, if one person wants to answer it and it kind of confirms with what everybody else is going to say, then that's fine. But then they can add to it if they want. So we've got two more super chats after this, and I don't think they're questions. Okay. So so everybody can get a everybody can get an answer in on this one if they want. Yeah, we'll I would say, oh, go ahead, Priscilla. Yeah, um, go ahead, Priscilla. 
I would say the scripture itself is infallible, so it doesn't need anything outside of it. Um, nothing outside of scripture is infallible in regard um, for me as a Protestant. Um, I hold to the scriptures and I just think, you know, it might not have been bounded, but it was at some point just, you know, existing. And so it was infallible, you know, as it was being carried and God, um, you know, preserved his word and he said it's God breathed. So I, I, we just have to trust that. And um, that's my answer to that question. Okay. Jeremiah or Paul? Paul, Do you want to go first or should I? Um, I'll let you go first. All right. Um, How can you be sure that you have an infallible list of books? We don't. Because God can give something to us that is sufficient and authoritative and does not have to be infallible. Um, our, our, like our ministers, and even then the fathers, where we get our canon list from, and as we've noticed, they are not unified, absolutely unified on this issue. And yet they are sufficient to tell us what the, what the authorities are, what the infallible books are. And we get, we receive their infallibility, not from the church, but from reading them. They are by nature theopneustos, and the scriptures reveal themselves as such. So do we have a infallible list of infallible books? Yeah, just like everyone else does. And it's by that same fallible reasoning that we decide which church is the proper church. Paul. Yeah, um, I'd say the question doesn't even... Really, when you look at the categories used, it doesn't actually make sense. An infallible list, what is that supposed to mean? I don't think infallibility, if you're speaking of a specific single proposition, the term infallibility doesn't really make sense um, because infallibility pertains to the liability for, in the, in the case of these disputes, uh, infallibility pertains to the liability of something to create true or false claims. In the, in the case of a list, um, it's either correct, if, if we're speaking of correct as in every single but it includes everything it needs to and doesn't include every anything it doesn't, then that's either correct or not. Now you can speak of it being infallibly assembled. So that's probably what he more so means by that. And I'd say that, uh, no, I don't have that. Um, and I, nor do I need to. Um, and if, is Mitch Orthodox or Romanist or? He's an Orthodox. Mitch is okay, Orthodox. Well, if, he's, if he's and intending he, this. He's continually strawmanning in the comments. If, that if he's, he's intending this as an absolute gotcha, as in, oh, because you don't have an infallible list of infallible books, therefore your uh, group's incoherent, then, I, then I'll simply say, look, Orthodoxy doesn't either. You can see Craig Truglia's video where he goes over um, the text in the rudder, uh, which is a, a, a church uh, canonical, Russian church canonical uh, text, um, which speaks of the six different canons accepted by orthodoxy. Now, of course, um, he can say, um, Mitch could probably say, well, we don't need an infallible canon because we have an infallible church. To which I'd simply say, do you have, and it's a legitimate question, do you have a uh, infallible list of infallible canons, that is, of the councils and canons of the church councils. Um, Tyler, do, actually, it might be a question for you. Does that actually exist? Is there an infallibly recognized list of ecumenical I, councils? I'm not sure off the top of my head. Okay, you said an go. infallible list of ecumenical councils? Infallible list of received councils and canons. I'm not sure off the top of my head. Okay, I'd have to get sure. back to you on that. As far as I'm aware, they don't exist. As far as I'm aware, that does not exist. And if it does exist, then, of course, we can always push the question back. Um, well, is your are the standards by which you came to 
the evidence that by which you came to that conclusion that this church is infallible, that that list is infallible, is that infallible? Um, then uh, you can always push it back. It's, so it's a very silly question. But to give the positive answer, it's uh, quite simply my belief in what I believe to be canon. And I'll be real, I'm more certain about certain books than others. I feel and sense the divine um, in certain texts more than others. That's just that's just reality how I am. Um, nonetheless, I what I do know and why I do affirm what I do is by the authority um, of Christ, of his apostles, and of the collective witness of the church. That's why I affirm what I do. Um, now, of course, does that re does it nonetheless leave room open for uh, for certain cases? Yeah, it absolutely does. But it actually does also um, it actually also does minus out ninety nine percent of all written books. There is no testimony that uh, that the Art of War by General Sun Tzu is of the canon of Scripture. Why? Because nobody, not Christ, the apostles, or any of the fathers of the church who received the teachings, um, even infallibly from Christ and the apostles, ever attested to such. So I can have a moral certainty in the sense that um, there is uh, there is all probability, there is all likelihood to this, and there is nothing against it. Um, I can have an, a true moral certainty that Sun Tzu's The Art of War is not canon. Um, likewise, for texts like the Four Gospels, like uh, Romans, First Corinthians, um, and other and many other texts, including most of the texts from the Old Testament. Um, I, I, I end up getting less certainty with certain books, such as Esther, for example, or with Second Peter, Third John, Revelation. And I grant that that's um, that there is less certainty with that. That's just the that's just the reality. And I don't think you're. I would say again, my perspective, Anglican. I don't think you just simply claiming that you have a church that solves that problem. Um, I don't think that solves the problem as well because it assumes that your church does have that authority and that's exactly what I deny. And the only way you can defend that is by you and ending up using historical and biblical reasoning, which you would actually condemn me for using as a private person. So um, that's actually kind of funny. Yeah. And before we continue, I mean, it's just Mitch's hey, question. Sorry, sorry, Jeremiah. Sorry, Jeremiah. Mitch, yeah, the Bible is the Bible because the Bible says so. Mitch, you're lying. Okay, you are lying at that point. I didn't say that. Yeah, that's 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 um, what I'm getting at. I'm not even treating the Bible as simply one single text at all. This is a canon of numerous texts. Um, so I don't simply say, why is Genesis canon? Oh, because Genesis says so. Uh, no, I don't. I one of the key reasons I believe it is because Christ, the God Man who came on Earth, who resurrected from the dead, himself affirms that it is of divine authority. That's why. Um, so please don't lie about my position and others here. And, and like he continues to say, like, how do you how could you base your entire life in this book when you don't know which books are God breathed or not? Completely, completely outside of the question and a complete straw man of the question. Yeah, I believe the, I do. Position, I believe yeah, I do. we I do know. We don't know infallibly, but we do know there is a difference between sufficient knowledge and infallible knowledge. You can give sufficient knowledge to someone without being infallible. I can know that two plus two equals four without having to be infallible about all things math. I mean, yeah. it's it's literally the 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 rhetoric here yeah. would literally deny anyone from being a sufficient theist. Because yeah. like any person, any Roman Catholic who's used this argument and have pointed out and have basically found out that the Roman Catholic position is false, they don't go to Protestantism. They go to atheism because they've gotten so far into this narrative that they can't know anything about faith. So therefore, they say either uh, either atheism or agnosticism. I can't know anything. Yeah. This is the narrative that that actually that it leads to. This is the consequences of we would if, if we're going to be you know trollish here. This is the consequences of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, particularly Mormons. this argument. Mormons do that too. A lot of ex Mormons, unfortunately 
because they have such a strong sense of like church authority that they're taught that, you know, there's so much disunity among all of us, Catholics, Protestants, and Eastern Orthodox, that that's how their church was even founded, right? Because Joseph Smith ha was like, which church should I join? He And he was supposedly told none of them for all are, you know, an abomination or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I just think um, it's very sad seeing a lot of them they bought into this whole like, well, if this church is not the true church of of the earth today, then a lot of them just don't know who to trust and they go to atheism. I think that would imply that Jesus lied as well, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against yeah. the church, right? And and so that's that's one reason why I'm not a Mormon, for example. Yeah, no, I'm just making that... making the similarities. No, right. And I agree with you. I agree 100% with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay. But it is it is a thing, you know, when whenever everybody's claiming, because, you know, Protestants, people get after Protestants for saying, well, how do you, this person says they interpret it this way. This one says that the Holy Spirit inspired them this way. How do you know which one has the correct interpretation? And it's like, you could flip the question back and say, well, which church is the true church? Because the Catholics say it's the true church. Mm -hmm. You know, Eastern Orthodox says it's the true church, mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, and as um, he was mentioning earlier, he was saying how, we get condemned when we use scripture and church history to do exactly what they do, which is to prove that their church is true. Mm -hmm. Okay. So right on. the next, yeah, yeah, chat, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, yeah. Tyler. Yeah. Next super chat is from orthodoxology. He says, if the church is the creation of the canon, dot, dot, dot. And then he has another super chat here. Uh, the pillar and foundation of the truth is not the canon. And so I don't know if you guys would want to respond to that statement or well, nobody we pass and... Yeah, I mean, it's just Good. simply nobody said that it was. The, the, particularly if we're looking at 1 Timothy 3.16, uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, uh, the pillar and buttress of the truth, that which holds something up, is the local church. It's not the canon. Because the canon, mm. or, or specifically the scriptures, are the truth specifically looking at the regular fide because if we're looking at first timothy 3 15 and 16 it, it, immediately after saying about us behaving in the household of god the local church which is the pillar and buttress of the truth he then provides the truth great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness he who is manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed up in the world taken up in glory it's the creed the creed, which is the summation of the entirety of scripture, that's what it holds up. That's what it proclaims. So it's not determining scripture. It's proclaiming what it already has. So so to to try to argue against that that claim using first first Thessalonians um, 316 is eisegesis to the max. I think there's a lot of misrepresentations, like a lot of people don't understand, they don't know what, they don't accurately represent like sola scriptura, or, you know, because they view it as scripture alone, which is really funny, because they're like, well, how can how can all five of them be alone? <laughs> right? Because it's like scripture alone and faith alone, how can they all be alone? <laughs> I don't know who says that, but that's silly. <laughs> I, I think so stop saying that, that people. <laughs> 
That, that's definitely not representative even of the pop level of orthodox and Roman yeah. politics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah we'll, you should we'll see be, my We'll comments. be slightly fair there. Yeah. Yes. Well, I have to be uh, the first to say that this has been a really fantastic discussion, and I am Were very you pleased, glad. Josh? I am pleased. <laughs> I am very pleased with how this went. Uh, there were you, there was a couple of times where we could have been a little bit more focused, uh, but there, there overall, this conversation has touched so many corners uh, that uh, of 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 the terrain that I think this is going to be a really great resource that we can, uh, you know. Uh, uh, rely back on if we're, we're we're talking about these things in future and i can tell that this series of why i am a dot 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 is going to be a very fun time this is mm -hmm. this is very cool yeah. Uh, yeah we'll definitely have to do it again <laughs> yeah for sure this is this is a great idea yeah. and uh we should do it more i think what we're doing right now is a partial let's say a a rough draft attempt at what i was asking earlier we're speaking with a divided tongue now what how about this how about we just talk to each other yeah. how about we really just start talking but how about we also really just start listening uh because as priscilla said just a second yeah. ago there's a lot of straw men there's a lot of misrepresentation but yeah. you know what there's a lot of misrepresentation from everybody about everybody and i think the fact that we're speaking with a divided tongue also indicates that we're listening with divided ears and I think it would be a good thing for us to be more self-aware in these kind of conversations. And I, I really am very pleased with this. I'm glad to be a part of it. I think the concept of, you know, speaking with a divided tongue maybe even shows that we're not listening. And that's why we are strawmanning, you know, the, the other positions. Um, so I agree. I think we need to do this more often. I think that uh, not only do we need to do why we are dot 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 or why we're not dot 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 i think the two new uh the two groups need to get together um and, and discuss these things uh just like you know we've been doing we've got debates set up for those who don't know we've got a debate on mary set up between uh, father jonathan ivanoff who's an orthodox priest and uh, pastor samuel farag who is a protestant pastor and so we've got that scheduled and i want to do this more often right i i think this is honestly how we get to the the, the bottom of the truth, like Jeremiah said, that the church holds up, right? Yeah. And this is what we need to do um, if we're going to even claim the name of Christian. Mm. First and foremost, we have got to get to the bottom of what the truth is. And thank God that that's a person whose name is Jesus Christ, right? Amen. And so with, Amen. That, being said, <laughs> with that being right. said, I want to thank uh, Mitchell, who left. I want to thank Dale and David for putting this together. I especially want to give my gratitude to Jeremiah Short. Uh, the other Paul and Priscilla uh, for for coming on, discussing this with me, answering my questions, being good sports about it, and uh, I that's my closing remarks, David. So you can take us out. Right buddy. on. No, you got to say your 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 coined quote, sir. Yes, we do have. Let the me know when. coming up. We have a lot of stuff coming up in the future. Just stay tuned with us. Uh, also, June thirtieth, I'll be debating Louis Dizon on mm -hmm. uh, intercession to the saints. Yeah, and you, it's so funny, guys. Like, I had so many papers prepared for this, but you guys just took it away, and I didn't even have to do much, which I, I'm thankful for, because then I had would have to have organized it. <laughs> I know how I felt last week. Stuff. Oh, my gosh, man. I, I hear you. But, yeah, it's uh, it, it was quite a blessing that you guys really, uh, you know, you guys stepped in and, and 
took it away, man. I had a lot of a lot of stuff prepared. I didn't even have to do, and we didn't even get to some of it. Uh, so that's that's always that's always fun. That shows that you know we're highly engaged in what we're talking about. So again, uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys for coming on. Tyler, take it away. So next week on Faith Unaltered, seven p.m. Friday, we have drug testimonies with a awesome awesome lady from uh, TikTok. Her name is Courtney. Uh, I will put her. I forget her TikTok name off the top of my head right now. I don't have it wrote down. Uh, but I will add that into the description and you can follow her if you would like to. Uh, after that, we've got June, y'all. We've got June every Friday booked. So on June the 2nd, we've got Clinton Wilcox coming on to talk about the role of music within the church. On the 9th is the debate. So the 2nd, that's at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, the 9th, we've got the Mary debate uh, between Father Jonathan Ivanoff and Pastor Samuel Fragg. That's 7 p.m. as well. Isaiah Burridge then is coming on Friday the 16th at 7 p.m. to talk about suffering and faith. He has experienced a whole host of suffering. I'll let, he, I'll let him tell his story, uh, but we're getting practical on how to apply faith in the midst of suffering uh, on the 16th. Then on the 23rd, we've got our good, good friend and brother in the Lord, Dane Von Ace, coming on to talk about biblical archaeology, recent finds within biblical archaeology, and how that uh, affects our understanding of the scriptures. And then on the 30th, as David said, he's got his debate with Louis Dizon on the intercession of the saints. And then we've got a second episode that night uh, with Roman Catholic Nicholas Soliner to talk about ghosts and spirits and demons and paranormal activity and fun stuff like that. So with that being said, y'all, thank you so much to our participants. Thank you to my co-hosts, Josh, David, and Dell. We love you all. Good night. God bless and stay like Christ.